3: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
4: Christopher Media, let's make some noise. William H. Bonney, he killed 21 men. I don't want to kill you, Bill. No, I sure hope you don't, Billy. And he was just a kid. Billy the Kid. You take this. My luck's running good. Patrick F. Garrett. He was the most dangerous outlaw in the territory. So they made him sheriff.
5: It's pretty fair shooting for an old married man. It's
4: just luck, I guess, how he did. Pat Garrett had just one friend, hey, Billy. Billy the Kid, and just one job, kill him. Now Sam Peckinpah, the director who unleashed the Wild Bunch, takes a hard new look at two old friends. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. They were legends in their own time. Times have changed. Times, maybe. Not me.
5: Get to it. One, two, three,
4: four, five,
6: six. I hope he gets away. Well, he won't. It's gonna be a loose rope. And a long drop. Well, I aim to bring the kid in. And
5: I'm aiming to please him. You'll track you down, Billy. And get you. Hey, you know, this ain't no time of here to go looking for somebody.
7: I don't know where he went. you got to do
5: better than that, Ruthie. I got to the point where I don't do nothing for nobody unless there's a piece of gold attached to it. <laughs> where is he? Fort Sumner! Fort Sumner. Where are we going, anyway? Fort Sumner? Fort <laughs>
6: Sumner. I know where the kid's at. I'll tell you where he's at.
4: Oh, Pat ain't gonna like this. James Coburn. Bill! Chris Christopherson. Come
6: on in, Pat.
4: Jason Robards. Slim Pickens. Cattie Hirado. Jack Elam. That'd be me, sure. Rita Coolidge. Chill Wills. Yeah. And introducing in his first dramatic motion picture performance... <clears throat> Plums. Recording star Bob Dylan...
6: They say that Pascal's got your number. You oh, sleep when one eye open when you wonder if every little sound just might be thunder. Thunder from the sound of his gun. Bonnie's killed Bell. Bonnie's, Bonnie's killed, killed Bell. Bell.
4: Kill me to. Sheriff Pat Garrett. Adios. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Legends in their own time. But time was running
2: out. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. David Lambert. Hello. Also joining me this week is Mr. Mike Falloon. uh, Yeah, really? You want to cut my budget? Are you peeing on your chair right now? (laughs) This week we are looking at Sam Peckinpah's Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Released in 1973 in a truncated form, the film has a long, contentious history. We'll be talking about that as well as the film itself, in which Chris Christopherson plays the titular Billy the Kid. He's the friend and eventual enemy of James Coburn as Pat Garrett. The film stars a host of familiar faces, and character actors, with this speaking to the passing of the torch from one generation of westerns to the next, or perhaps snuffing out that flame. We're going to be getting into some some massive spoilers here. I also want to encourage people to head back to our One Eye Jacks episode, because these two episodes really kind of speak to one another. So, Mike, when was the first time you saw Pat Garrett and Billy
8: the Kid, and what did you think, sir? It was probably about eight or ten years ago, and my uh, my father in law <laughs> tipped me off to the Wild Bunch not too long before that. And uh, I watched it once and kind of shrugged it off. And something brought me back to the Wild Bunch. And then um, I got so into that that I went through the almost the rest of the Peck and Paw movies like moving forward there for the next 10 years. And prior to that, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid was always the movie with the Bob Dylan soundtrack, uh, which was not anything of appeal to me. I was never a Dylan fan. And we'll talk about this more later, but the, the Slim Pickens scene was what turned me around to uh, to Bob Dylan. But the thing about this movie, it was... It was like his other movies so intense and so violent in so many ways but it's also like like staring into someone's eyes for 2 hours and it's like there there's the a very uh the level of of intensity emotional intensity that's kind of uh seemingly at, at odds with the uh, the gunplay and that like bright red ketchup blood that he uses uh, in this movie and then watching it again, I actually started to realize there is a bit of a plot here, and and some of the like the subtext and substories that are that bubble up took me a couple of watchings to or a couple of viewings to to pick up on. Such an, an unrelentingly bleak world, but there's also something so compelling, a lot of things compelling about it that made me want to go back to it. And uh, my thinking about it changes every time I watch it. So it's uh, it's it's one of those really malleable uh, kind of Movies where the more I go back to it, you know, it it kind of reveals different things each time.
9: Uh, I actually saw it. um, I rented an old VHS and it was actually the um, the theatrical cut and probably about 17 years ago. And I was uh, was really big on The Wild Bunch. Yeah, I remember uh, watching it and thinking it was really weird. Definitely, definitely different from The Wild Bunch. But I knew that I liked it. And that was basically it. Uh, it was uh, after the Wild Bunch I started really getting into westerns, and so I think I'd seen like the Leone films, and then and then this one, and yeah, and then eventually I saw the, I guess what would you call it, the rough cut, the expanded version with the new with the opening with the chicken with the intercutting the chickens with with Garrett's death and all that. Uh, I, I basically yeah I just would always come back to it. I'm actually pretty obsessed with it.
2: Well, I can see where you say that it's different from The Wild Bunch, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of similarities as far as like this whole idea of like the, the end of the West. Like The Wild Bunch seems like it's speaking to the end of the West. And this to me feels a lot like it's speaking to the end of the West. And you mentioned the Leone Westerns and like Once Upon a Time in the West. I was just talking about this last week with The Better Tomorrow and The Killer and, and John Woo's films, how there always seems to be like, There's the warrior race, like the gunmen, and civilization is coming, and pretty soon they're going to fade off into the background and just become legends. And Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, I mean, those two names, without even speaking about the real people, because I think we'll probably not really mention the real Pat Garrett and the real Billy the Kid at all during this discussion. We'll probably just be talking about their movie representation, because they are legends they were real people but we use these characters as characters we don't talk about them you know this isn't a documentary this is this is a, a fictional account of them and Peck and paw and Wurlitzer and other people involved using them to tell a story and it's you know like kind of recasting Macbeth or Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet in different time periods and using them to express different ideas here we have pat garrett and billy the kid in this relationship and them at the end of the west and the powers that be jason Robards in particular kind of putting an end to the wildness of the west trying to tame the west and by getting rid of the wildness of billy the kid and kind of by gutting pat garrett as well I mean, obviously, thematically, it has
9: uh, overlap with Peg and Paw*'s other movies and, uh, you know, the wild bunch, you know, the friends turned against each other and all that. You know, he he basically explores all those themes. What's interesting is that Pat Gary and the Kid is very elegiac, but it's not a romanticized version of the West in the sense that there's a certain amount of irony to the movie in the way that – Peckinpah's most of his other westerns are turn of the century westerns. So the west is basically dead and you know it's the last vestige of that. And so this is outside of like major Dundee that is actually in the west the 1880s. There's all these old timers telling these stories and every story they tell is absolutely horrible. They're looking back at it fondly but it's like a guy stole another guy's horse and he they put a snake in his in his uh, bedroll and a uh, guy drowned in the Rio Grande or, you know, U.S. Christmas got shot over some boots. You know, every story that they tell is a horrible, you know, st- so there's a certain amount of humor and irony and all these old timers looking back fondly at the worst time. The encroaching civilization isn't good, but what was there before wasn't good either. It's not a simplistic elegy to the West, I wouldn't say.
8: And with that, too, there's multiple times where somebody says something to the effect of, I hope you guys remember me, or they spell my name right in the paper. Everybody wants to be remembered, but the memories they share, as you were just saying, are, are horrible memories. And there's, <laughs> there's one part toward the end where Pete Maxwell's retelling one of those stories, and uh, Billy the Kid and, and his lady friend, they just walk out in the middle of the story. They want to be remembered, but they don't necessarily want to hear anybody else's memories.
4: Recollect the time. Toddy Sparks got his horse stole. Jay Summers stole it. It was up by Del Rio. Old Toddy got even,
6: though.
4: (laughs) He sure did. Put a rattler in Jay's blanket.
2: Bit him through the neck. Everybody in this film is somebody. Like if you watch this movie and you're a fan of westerns, you're just going to have a field day with it, because there are so many familiar faces. It's not like, you know, it's even the third guy to the left. It's like, oh, well, that's that's this guy, and that's this guy over here. It Just every time they introduce a new character, and there are so many characters, because of the way that this story is told, every time a new character gets introduced, you're just like, oh, well, hey, there's Jack Elam. Oh, there's Slim Pickens. There's Elijah Cook Jr. It's just like over and over and over. And if you're a fan of Peckinpah Paw Westerns, it's like, oh well there's, you know, this guy from this movie and this guy from this other Peck and Paw film, and you just see more and more of these faces. It's kind of like those gunfighters at the beginning of Once Upon a Time in the West, where it's like there's Woody Strode, there's Jack Elam and the third guy who was from the spaghetti Western. So it's just like kind of, you know, the passing of the torch with this, but at the same time, like I said, kind of the snuffing of the torch. Cause these guys, they all die. Everybody fucking dies, you know? And, and it's not pleasant to your point at one person after another, after another. And it
8: just seems like they're all going to their fate. They're all just grist for the mill. Yeah. Every time uh, Pat or Billy shows up and taps somebody, they just look at me like, oh, I'm glad to see you. I'm going to die now. And the like the acceptance of their fate is so grim. It's not it's not till later in the movie where <clears throat> one of these guys says, No, I don't want to go. I don't want I don't want to get shot. <laughs> and then Pat responds, here's why you owe me. And it rattles off like five or six reasons as to why he's indebted to him. And ironically, he uh I'm, I'm blanking on the character name, but he survives. He's there uh, when when Billy the, is shot. But everybody else, just you show up, they're going to either take your woman, or your food, or your horse, or or worse, your life.
9: Yeah, there's a real desensitized approach to the violence. It's not. It's definitely not the spectacle of of the Wild Bunch or other Peck and Paul movies. It's very almost perfunctory. They just kind of. They're just well, you know. Have you have you thought of another way? No, I can't think of anything. And then they just yeah. kill each other, you know, as these kids are watching. And so it's the movie's approach to violence is not as it's not as visceral. It's just sort of it's sort of an afterthought. Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia kind of has a little bit of that too, but in Peckinpah's filmography, I don't think that his approach to violence is was ever quite like it is in this movie.
8: And watching the kids on the periphery of the violence throughout the movie is is startling too. Like the, um, they scramble in to pick up the headless chickens early on. They're s- literally swinging in a noose, and in that uh, the duel that you were just mentioning, they step out of the house in the middle of dinner to watch that duel. And then at the end, there's that part too where a, a boy's throwing stones at Pat Garrett as he rides off into the sunset. No one quite puts. Innocence and right, right on the on the edge of things, quite like uh, like Peckinpah does.
2: Yeah, it's like those kids playing with the scorpion at the beginning of The Wild Bunch. You know, like those kids coming out to Benny when he's going in to get ice, and all the kids are coming around. Yeah, it's just like he loves to have that dichotomy, and especially the whole. Young and old. I mean, you're talking about the very young, but then we can also, at some point, we need to talk about kind of this generation of Chris Christopherson and Bob Dylan versus the generation of Coburn and Jekyll and Barry Sullivan and these guys. Peckinpah likes to do that.
9: You know, he he did a similar thing in Ride the High Country of sort of... Casting with, like, the knowledge of, you know, what what an actor's history, you know, is going to bring to the role. So by having all those, you know, all these character actors and everything, it's like every, every weird character that they run into
2: already almost has, like, a backstory in place, if you're familiar with Westerns. Yeah, you're like, is Barry Sullivan, Barry Sullivan? Is he Chisholm? Or is he somebody that he was in a previous film and bringing all that history to it?
8: I don't know westerns that well. I'm not as well versed in the genre, and that comes across. Those faces and, the, and that depth of expression comes across to someone like me who doesn't have that background. Like every, I feel like every one of those faces could spawn its own, you know, six issue mini series of a comic book. You were mentioning Slim Pickens a while ago. Like he's not mentioned before. It's not like they kind of ramp up to his character, and he's not mentioned after. And the, the depth of his scene is, is so uh, is so amazing. Similarly with Paco's last words as he's dying on the desert floor and talking about this house that he wants to build. It's like in a span of 30 or 45 seconds. They, there's like a, a short story or, or novella's level of depth that percolates up. And, and with a lot of those other characters you're referring to, sometimes it's just a look or an expression that you see. It's not even these guys who get a chance to, to voice any of these dreams or aspirations. Mm-hmm.
9: The Slim Pickens scene is so interesting because, yeah, you are just introduced to this guy and then he's dead after, you know, a few minutes of knowing him and he gets like this, like the most beautiful send off. So it's fascinating. It's almost like you're watching the end of his movie. Somehow it got, you know what I mean? It's it's really interesting. And I've heard people complain, like, why does he why does he get like this amazing death scene? We don't even know who he is. But that's sort of the whole kind of theme of the movie.
8: Absolutely. Every, everybody should have a send off like that. And one of the things I, I picked up in just watching it earlier today was uh, his big dream is to finish building this boat and drift off. And I'm like, oh, that's so poetic and that's so beautiful. Then I realized his his big escape scene, like what he really strives for, is to escape from the desert with a boat and, and drifting off. You know, like you'd be hard pressed to come up with a more passive way of escaping. But he's it, 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 so I, I love that contradiction between he's actually trying to work on something and actively do something about it and there's also a level of, of reticence or, or, or reluctance or you know this this is my fate and I can't do anything about it and I'm gonna I'm gonna float away or drift away as he says in this boat that he's building.
9: Everyone in this movie is basically they're basically just all drifting. There's really no drive everyone's just kind of sort of
2: drifting uh, you know to their end to that and we should talk about just the way that this movie is shaped because we talk about these characters that are drifting and they kind of drift in and don't necessarily drift out of the story too often they usually end up dying but the way that the story is told is almost through it's like vignettes you know there's a central theme to it which is yeah the governor wallace the jason robarts character has asked Pat Garrett to politely ask Billy the Kid to move to Mexico so that we can tame the West and James Colburn as Pat Garrett you know, meets up with uh, Chris Christopherson Billy the Kid. Hey Billy you're going to need to move on to Mexico and this is me asking you politely and I'll ask you impolitely after five days. That's it. That's basically I just wrote the entire script for it. And then the rest of it is the little moments and the side stories that come about, because for the majority of the movie, we don't see Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid in the same place. They're just kind of—it's like the loosest pursuit that
8: you're ever going to see. That idea of pursuit is—it's um, interesting to to think about. Rudy Wurlitzer is the writer of it, and watching it recently, I've been thinking about the—you know—on a, on a figurative level, to what extent. It's not about one person pursuing another person, but with a, a conflict within. In one of Wurlitzer's book, uh, Nog, it's just this very uh, vaguely defined post apocalyptic world. And there's a narrator who's referring to himself sometimes in the, in the third person, and the narrative will shift, and he's, the writer's referring to him, and his name changes over time. And so there's like these three or four identities that are within one. With Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, it, it, I think it comes through most clearly at the end. After uh, after Pat shoots Billy, he turns and shoots the mirror, like you know, figurative level, shooting himself. It's like you were you were talking, Mike, about this kind of as a, a on a bigger scale, and I was thinking of it as almost like uh, um, like in a generational level, like Billy, the kids, the more idealistic person who wants to hold on to and resist change, and Pat Garrett is the pragmatic survivor who's accepted change. Um, so there's, there's like the, there's the chase over time and space, but there's also kind of a, a chase or a, a death within thinking about it from the perspective of who wrote it or is credited as the screenwriter, or and some of his other, uh, some of his other things. Um, it takes everything in a whole other direction. Like, yeah, it could just be a Western, but it could also be like this struggle that these cowboys go through. But I think by extension, everybody ha, you know has their own their own version of that. I've read a couple drafts, and uh, I know that he'd written it um,
9: originally for Monty Hellman to make uh, but the studio wanted more bankable director. His first draft is very it's very much like in line with um you know Monty Hellman's work two Lane blacktop, especially it's just sort of. It's even more loose. It doesn't have all the characters. It's, it's, it's very different. And then he, um, he published his sort of a, a mix of his original draft and then the rewrites that he had done for Peck and Paw. But in in his draft, Pat Garrett and really the Kid don't don't ever meet. It's, it's even more loose. And uh, Peck and started shaping it. I don't know if we want to get into that yet about you know the
2: authentic death of Henry Jones. I kind of said up top that there's a lot of dialogue between this movie and One-Eyed Jacks, which was based upon the authentic death of Henry Jones. Very, again, very, very loosely. So it's like that one book kind of helped spur these two movies. And then even if you look at certain scenes in one movie to the other, like I especially think of when Billy the kid is in jail and there's that awesome keep the change, Bob line. Yeah, you know, but there isn't nothing. Uh, there isn't. With Lucky
3: Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: This is your
5: captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky.
3: Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky?
7: Play for free at
3: LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Anything as cool as that necessarily in, in One-Eyed Jacks, but there is that great, again, Slim Pickens and the jail escape and all that. Those two scenes, those moments where Rio is in jail versus Billy the Kid in jail, it's almost like two writers' versions of the same events. You know, it's so, yeah, there's a lot of overlap with those two films.
9: Pekabai had written a draft of One-Eyed Jacks based on The Authentic Death of Henry Jones, which, you know, which was a very loosely based on Billy the Kid. When he agreed to make Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid off of Warlitzer's script, I guess he claimed that he had he he read it and loved it and then reread the script and was like, you know, there's no drama to it. Like he freaked out, I guess. So he had um, suggested that Wurlitzer incorporate stuff from his draft of One Eyed Jack's, which basically went unused. Thematically, Wurlitzer was basically doing something very similar to what the authentic death of Henry Jones was doing although he claims that he'd never read it which is basically this sort of idea of a, of a Billy the Kid who's like a burnout uh Warlitzer's original draft of of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid was actually just called Billy the Kid and it was it focused a lot more on Billy the Kid and as he was writing it he became more and more enamored with the character of Pat Garrett so much so that some people have claimed that, you know, Billy the Kid gets a little bit of short shift in the movie. He's not nearly as developed as Pat Garrett, but he's sort of, in his own way, a reflection of Pat Garrett. If you've read The Authentic Death of Henry Jones, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is actually a closer adaptation of that book than
2: One Eyed Jacks, the official adaptation. When you say that Billy the Kid is a burnout, do you mean that he wore like jean jackets and listened to Def Leppard? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I like uh, that image in my head. He's got the cigarette tucked behind his ear, and the pack is rolled up in his short sleeve shirt. People have complained that
9: Chris Christopherson is is too old to play Billy the Kid, which might be true. But the point is that Billy the Kid, you're, uh, thematically, you're supposed to get the idea that this guy is is past his time. He isn't going anywhere. You know. Uh, of course, no one ever complains that James Coburn is too old to play Pat Garrett, who was like 31. During the events, you know that had actually taken place, but you know he's he's not called Pat Garrett the kid. I guess <laughs> everybody becomes <laughs> an expert. Pegan Paul wasn't an idiot. He's not gonna. He's. It's not like he didn't know that Billy the Kid was twenty one. It's not like he didn't know that
2: Chris Christopherson is too old to be to be playing him. That's that's the point. Granted, this is the youngest I've seen Chris Christopherson look. We're we're used to the Whistler version of Chris Christopherson these days. We're (laughs) used to the the scraggly beard and all that kind of stuff. And this is the fresh faced Chris Christopherson, which we haven't seen for a long damn time. So even looking at him just recently rewatching this, I was like, wow, he was,
8: he was really kind of a looker back then. I can really see where Barbra Streisand was going for him you can see why you know he would show up at your doorstep and you'd be like, "Yeah, I'm going to ride with you," or you can you can have my horse or whatever you want. You you've charmed me with your smile alone. I will join
2: your convoy, Rubber Duck. And yeah, James Coburn, I mean, he definitely was older, but I like that world-weariness to his face that he has, and I think he's playing it older than he actually was. You're right. This is him coming to terms with basically becoming Judas. You know, this is him having to kill someone that is his best friend. And he's having to come to grips with gearing up for collecting those 30 pieces of silver. And he doesn't want to do it, but he is going to do it because that I guess is his duty, but he's going to debase himself and do all kinds of horrible things in order to put himself into that assassin role.
9: In Wurlitzer's script, it's actually, he mentions to, to chisholm he talks about how chisholm has given him money for for you know uh, a loan for this land and that's the land that he gets killed on so there's definitely a judas the 30 pieces of silver buying whatever the potter's field where he gets killed where he dies at you know there's definitely there was there's some thematic stuff there and uh, it's a little obvious but you know christopherson does like that christ pose when he gets <laughs> caught it's a little on the nose he's got like a red handkerchief Looking like the side wound and everything, I'm glad that that wasn't too developed. I don't know. I don't. I mean, it's 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 on
2: the periphery, but it's not too too in your face. Well, it reminds me of the hands from One eyed Jacks and all of the emphasis on the hands, and you know, it's like, they don't show, there's no stigmata in one eye Jacks, but it's just like all of those shots of Rio's hands, and then when Dad Longsworth whips him in the public square, it reminds me of when Jesus was beaten, and given what, like the 39 lashes, or whatever, so it's just like, yeah, Marlon Brando as Jesus, Chris Christopherson as Jesus, I don't think that either one of them was too on the nose, thank goodness, but yeah, when Christopherson comes out with his arms out, like, that it was just like wow this is almost you know as blatant as the end of uh, the omega man
9: something you'd see in a spaghetti western or something like that kind of like obvious symbolism
8: as you were talking about the two characters i, I was thinking of that line where uh pat garrett says i just want to be rich and old and gray and i i, I wrote that down i'm like yeah he got it all then i looked back at it and i'm like old and gray is kind of redundant like the, the, it's like survival is uh, survival is such a big part of it because it, to some extent he's already achieved what he sought to get he has the house literally surrounded by the white picket fence and he's married and there's there's some comfort in his life there's no none of the satisfaction that that I presume he sought and there's one of my favorite parts in the movie is when he comes home and he pauses before he opens the picket fence and steps inside Mrs. Garrett just has a standoff and he's like, no, not now. And she's like, see, sí, or like, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to talk this out now. He's really has nothing that he's wanted and, and she doesn't either. You know, there's you, going back to that idea of these, these peripheral characters emerging suddenly and having these really like, really dense rich stories she starts talking about how her family no longer speaks to her so she's totally ostracized for what she's accepted which parallels you know his isolation because he's he's got the badge and and no one looks at him the same way i think one of the things that's hard to watch peckinpah movies is just the way women are treated and and a, and a monologue like hers a scene like that is a nice it's a welcome contrast to that because, like, she really she does go eye to eye with him and toe to toe with him, and he he rips the curtains off and and wants to cross that line, but but doesn't do that.
2: Yeah, there's so few women in this film. I think there's only like four or five of them that even get credits in the end credits. Yeah, lots of whores though. As to be expected.
9: Yeah, the scene where he where he visits Ida Garrett, the set decoration is so like cluttered. It's, it, it's this domestic thing, but it's just he's got the ironing board right in front of him. And it, it's, it's the way Paul uses the set decoration to show how trapped Garrett feels. It's, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's really, really well done. And how him waiting at the picket fence mirrors the end when he has to go kill Billy. You know, it's there's a lot of it's, the visuals are very nice in underscoring that.
8: Yeah, that's that's a great point, because other than that scene at the governor's mansion, <clears throat> this movie is just totally dust and despair just covers everything. And like all those scenes with their at Fort Sumner and like, it's not the end of the West chronologically, but just the, the place that they're hanging out it's so decayed. And there's so much. It's just so incredibly heavy across the the course of the movie. And then he steps into the house that like you said is is so well decorated and seems to have all the things that all of the people in this region and this time are aspiring for and he's got it and it's like i got away from what i wanted to escape or needed to escape but i didn't quite yet find or maybe never will find what i was after too
9: it's probably my favorite production design in any western because it goes beyond just like the wagon wheel on the wall, you know what I mean? Or the barrels or, you know what I mean? Like the typical stuff you see, like at the trading post, just like all the bird cages on, you know, on the side or just there's, it's so lived in and it has these details that like all the character actors have a backstory. It's not typical Western production design. It's got, you get a feeling that these people actually live here, you know?
8: Yeah, and you see that when the uh the slim Pickens scene too where when he first starts talking to Pat, he's he's around the side of the house and he's he's not just talking about that boat, he's building that boat and you can see the you know, you can see the boat underway. It's, every character does has that uh not every, but so many of those characters have those visual aspects to complement the the depth of expression and, and and what they they imply so much with their their few moments.
9: There's so much detail and everything, but then when you get to like the jailhouse scene, it's just a big empty room with like one cat, like a calendar on the wall and a table. It's brilliantly done the way that they underscore the isolation or the feeling trapped with Garrett and
8: that jailhouse scene too. Uh, if we're talking about the same one, you, you see the the chain links anchored to the center of the floor and nothing around it. There's amazing things like that.
9: Yeah, I guess Pe- Peck and Paul. It's something that I think he began on the on the TV show The Westerner. He would have the prop department overdress the set, and then he'd come in and start pulling stuff out a- until he got it to to where he wanted it. He uses the production design brilliantly to underscore.
3: With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
9: You know, how isolated the kid is in jail and, uh, and all that.
8: That's a great point, too, because so it's on its surface, it's so obviously bleak and drab and, and it really doesn't stray from that very much. Um, but there's so many other elements that he could manipulate and, and sculpt, like you said, to, to kind of underscore the emotional or psychological angles of these characters. And that, I think that's one of the reasons that keeps us going back to it is <laughs> the, the plot is really just get out get out before I kill you. There's so many other ways that he uh, kind of pushes those other elements up in the mix.
9: Or the way in the duel between Alamosa Bill and Billy the Kid, the little details of when they're having the duel, you see the, the father taking the door off because he's going to use it to make a coffin for one of them. It's those little kind of details.
8: And just as he gets wind of the fact that there's a duel on the horizon he points to. he's like, I just fixed that door and I used the previous door to bury my son. He's just buried over there. And it goes back to that, that grim acceptance of he's, he's surrounded by this. He doesn't blink an eye in talking about the fact that his, his son is just buried over there. And he's going to be building another coffin for one of the pe- two people he's now eating with.
9: Just the des- desensitized approach to violence. It's, it's sort of self-reflective. Peckinpah said that he thought that when he made the Wild Bunch, he he said that he thought catharsis. He thought that he could have a certain amount of uh, catharsis by with through through portraying violence in, in in that way. And he famously said in an interview, "I was wrong." So he's kind of being self reflective of how the violence, even in his own movies, isn't cathartic. It's it is desensitizing. I mean, that's I I, yeah, I don't I don't know if he was trying to wind up. Uh, the interviewer, or what? But he, but he famously said that. And and the violence in his movies, as he goes along, it isn't as exciting.
8: Just wondered to what extent that Billy the Kid, Pat Garrett dichotomy was was in Peck and Paw too. Oh yeah, I think I think that Garrett is
9: is definitely
8: a corollary for Peck and Paw in many ways.
9: Uh, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier him shooting his own reflection in the mirror, and that was a thing that Peck and Paw had done. James Coburn saw Peckinpah do that, and he was like, "I want to do that in the movie." Peckinpah was famously at this point carrying around guns and shooting, shooting through walls and throwing knives. So he was he was getting more and more unhinged. But he, you know, that the idea of selling out is definitely something that Peckinpah would have um, would have related to. He it was always basically, you know, he said he's a he's a good whore. You know, he he goes where he's kicked. So, yeah, I I definitely think that Pat Garrett is very reflective
2: of of Peckinpah. Well, speaking of selling out, let's talk about that guy who went electric and just really (laughs) threw off the entire folk community, which is Bob Dylan as Alias.
4: What's your name, boy? Alias. Alias what?
2: Alias anything you please.
0: What do we call you?
2: Alias. Hell, just call him Alias. That's what I'd do.
7: Alias, it is.
2: I mean, as soon as Bob Dylan shows up on screen, he just stands out so much. It's like, it kind of reminds me of Kinky Friedman, the Jewish cowboy. You know, it's just like, here is this guy. Here I am. You know, like, even when he's like amongst the crowd, I'm like, there's Bob Dylan just standing right there. And his relationship to the film is interesting because he just, again, kind of wanders through it. And I always like when he's on screen. I like what he's doing, and it's some interesting choices. But I was surprised the first time I saw him in this. I like the use of his music in this, though it's kind of interesting the way it will just kind of fade in into some scenes and then fade out. Um Not talking about the Heaven's Door sequence necessarily, but...
8: As you are talking about it, I picture that scene where he's Like, yeah, these four guys just rode into town. And you you kind of portray him as one of the four. And he just, over the course of that scene, he just slowly makes his way over to Billy, the kid's side, before throwing the knife. And the whole time, like, the more I follow that character, the more he seems like he's kind of, he's he's not one of the kids. He's not just, like, rushing in after the violence. But he's also not one of the cowboys who's completely accepted their fate. He's in this other... He's in this other place and that, and and that other scene where he's like, why don't you go over there and read the cans? Like there's one of the literally puts on his glasses and there's like this kind of nod to city living and literacy and stuff like that. He's, he's so like drawn to that world, but also not fully of it or in it or not yet. It's, 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 uh, I haven't, I haven't totally wrapped my head around it actually
9: it's kind of undeveloped in, in the film and i think some scenes might have got cut cuz there's set photos of like him playing the guitar for some mexican children but it's sort of uh, it's sort of uh, implied because he works at a when you first see him he works at like the newspaper place he works at the print shop so it's sort of implied that he's the guy that's going to carry on this legend or, or something to that effect. And so by having him sing on the soundtrack, you know, about Billy the kid and blah, 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 it's suggested, but it's not ever really too developed. He's definitely a little distracting. It's hard not to just like focus on him. Yeah. And when you see him on screen, I love his music in the movie. I know that he famously clashed with Jerry Fielding. Jerry Fielding quit after he heard knocking on heaven's door uh He was he was very pissed off. And while I, I love Jerry Fielding's music and other Peck and Paul movies, I don't, I can't imagine this movie without the Dylan soundtrack. It's such, it's so much a fat, part of the fabric of 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 the film. And it's a it's a weird soundtrack, but I couldn't imagine the film any other way. I could, I definitely couldn't imagine it with a Fielding soundtrack.
8: I was never a Dylan fan until seeing it the first time, and. To the extent that I knew his music prior to seeing this, I always thought of him as someone who was lyrics first and, and and music secondary to that. I think this movie fits that. I I I I love the music in it. I think the lyrics are surprisingly literal. Like he keeps going back to that one about Pat Garrett has your number, and he's like kind of talking to Billy the Kid, rooting him on. And there's some of the lyrics seem to just kind of come right out of the plot of things. But the music itself. I I never think of of Dylan as someone who I'd want to hear play guitar for three or five minutes. Um, And there's several stretches here where it's just guitar and bass and it's, it's, it's really compelling. And then you get to knocking on heaven's door, which is, that's one of the standout scenes of the whole movie. But again, that the lyrics to that are, you know, uh, I gotta, you know, take off this badge. Things are getting too dark. And then when you watch the, the movies, you listen to the song it's, it's it's not dealing at his best lyrically, but it's in every other way the, the music is it's so amazing. But it's also kind of a, a bridge for him, you know. Like um, Blood on the Tracks still hadn't come out, so it was still this a different era for him. I'm also interested in what you guys notice about just the way the music comes up. It's one of the it's still pretty early in the era of rock music as as soundtrack. There's some points where it's like somebody dies, and there's like a beat just a like a beat more than it needs to be, and then the music comes in to remind you that someone has just died.
2: At least it's not raindrops keep falling on my head. <laughs> god, I, I love love that movie, except for that scene. Oh my god. Yeah. I, I, I so want somebody to do a, uh, a fan edit of Butch Cassidy and the Sunnetsk just chop that <laughs> the fuck out of there. Oh my god. Yeah, it's fascinating
9: how many like, singer-songwriters did like western soundtracks Obviously, Leonard Cohen, which was already stuff that had been recorded in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. If Joe Strummer on Walker. That Ned Kelly movie with Mick Jagger had, um, what, like Waylon Jennings? Who did Dead Man? Uh, Neil Young. Okay. This film is especially an influence on Dead Man. Just sort of the, the weird characters, the drifting element of it, yeah. it's just sort of the clumsy uh, violence. I I think that, uh, I think this is a big influence on Dead Man.
2: Well, as we're talking, I keep thinking of the Unforgiven. Like, even when you're talking about Alias possibly writing the story of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, I'm thinking of the, uh, Saul Rubinick character writing about English Bob in Unforgiven. And it's like that kind of, uh, idealized Western world clashing with the little Bill, Bill Money the real life Western that's happening. And really you can kind of see like this whole idea of bill money is living kind of this idealized life at one point and then everything turns to shit. And then he has to kind of go on his journey. It kind of reminds me he's, he's almost the, he's almost Pat Garrett and Billy the kid at once. And then Gene Hackman is kind of that same Pat Garrett and Billy the kid wrapped into one also and it's just that conflict between those those forces between them that makes that movie so interesting you know as as little bill is the you know the source of the law but he's really worse than the outlaws and so it's just uh and again talking about um slim pickens building his boat and thinking of gene hackman as little bill building his house and just how that you know, the house building is, is such a major theme of that film. So the, I think that that would make a really good, you know, I've already talked about, you know, you should watch this with One-Eyed Jacks. But I think that this would also make a good triple feature, maybe quadruple feature with Dead Man as well. But I think Unforgiven kind of slips comfortably into a space uh, between these films. Even speaking.
3: With the Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
9: That scene where Garrett is in the trading post with uh, with Polly is such a it's such a tough scene to watch throughout the film. You're you're basically kind of on Garrett's side, if not, you know, if not rooting for him, at least you're you empathize with him. But then but that scene is just so just such a tough scene to watch the way he gets, you know, he's just getting him drunk and just abusing his power. It's rough. That's a rough scene.
8: There's so many points along the way are like it doesn't have to take that turn. This this guy is not a threat. And he, he says literally, and I think there's something to it. He's like, I'm not really, you know, I don't really care about either one of you guys.
9: He kills a guy just to just to send a message. Like he just kills Holly just to send a message to 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 Billy. I mean, uh, it's terrible. And Richard Bright is so good in that scene, the way he plays the the drunkenness.
2: All the faces. I know that this is beating a dead horse, but the faces in this and just those familiar faces. I mean, even some of the newer faces like Lucas Q and John Beck, John Beck that we talked about in the Rollerblade episode – Jack Elam, who's always a fantastic face. LQ Jones, who is always great, plus that amazing voice. But then even to see like Charles Martin Smith show up in this, uh, yeah. he's just like one year <laughs> post uh, American graffiti, if memory serves. I just mentioned John Davis Chandler last week when we were talking about Once a Thief, the 1965 film. And then oh, for my, what am I? most favorite character actors because i love this guy's voice is dub taylor when dub taylor shows up and i had only know when i was a little kid i fell in love with dub taylor from the i think it's the hubba bubba commercials and i would just be <laughs> like this yeah. guy is awesome just he had that great voice
4: He's coming! He's coming!
5: There's gonna be a gum fight! <laughs> There's a brand new bubble gum in town named Hubba Bubba. It's soft, juicy, and delicious. Best of all, Hubba Bubba lets you blow great, big, fat bubbles <laughs> <laughs> that won't stick to your face. Big bubbles,
2: no troubles. <laughs> you Hubba Bubba Bubba. Bubba. To see him show up in this and Peckinpah gives him plenty of time to just talk and talk at Elisha Cook Jr., who is always, again, one of my favorites to see. And just, yeah, it's like face after face after face. I mean, this is like more faces than a, than a damn, uh, Fellini film, you know? And (laughs) it's just, it, and then again, you know, uh, we, I mentioned, um, uh, R.G. Armstrong is always amazing, but going back to Slim Pickens, I mean, to have some, Slim Pickens in this, and also Katie Gerondo in this, and then they're both in one Eye Jacks, which is another film that's just filled with wonderful faces. I'm surprised, of all the people that showed up to this party, I'm just surprised that Ben Johnson didn't show up to this, because it seemed like everybody else in the world was there except for Ben Johnson. Or Strether Martin. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if Struther Martin and, and Dub Taylor can exist in the same world. You know, they might just the things might explode if those two start talking at the same time.
9: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little much. Well, and that's the thing, it's like if you didn't know Bob Dylan was Bob Dylan, he would just fit in as just another weird weird guy in the film. He's just so itchy and and, and strange. And then in World's in, in script, alias had a stutter. Thank God that they changed that because I don't know if Dylan would have been able to pull that off.
8: There's a, an interesting parallel between the the seeming uh, loyalty that Peckinpah inspired among all of those character actors and and Billy the Kid, too. Every time he drops in among these other people, there's all he has to do is flash that smile and it speaks so much. And then and, and that level of loyalty and it's like that code that everybody aspires to and and maybe they come across it now and again – uh, it's just interesting how there's that kind of onset-offset uh, similarity between um, the actors and the characters.
9: Yeah, and underscoring that is um, you do get the idea of all this loyalty for the kid. Mm-hmm. What Peckinpah does is that when the kid goes to the bathroom and there's a gun in there, it's never explained who put it in there. It's You know what I mean? It's never yeah. – and you don't need it but any other film like a lesser uh, a lesser filmmaker would you know have the scene of the guy putting it in or telling the kid or whatever it's just in there you know you just accept it because it is implicit that the kid has a bunch of sympathizers but it's never he doesn't have to actually show it you know he doesn't have to and there's a lot of kind of narrative shorthand that if people aren't like familiar with the basics of the Billy the kid story i don't i i don't know if they would be like that's weird i don't know but uh i like i like that kind of shorthand
8: yeah i do too it's like where, where he can push characterization over plot like he doesn't have to explain and show the events he can just let the people in the relationships show it rather than tell it
2: david you mentioned that you saw the shorter version of this and i'm sure that i saw the shorter version way way back but I don't remember what's different between the shorter, the longer, and there's the at least cuz I've got the the DVD set and there's at least two v- DVDs on there with two different cuts of it. Can you kind of encapsulate what some of the differences are between some of these versions? The Cedar cut is basically the theatrical version,
9: but he added in the cross-cutting between the chickens being killed and Garrett being killed in the theatrical version. Garrett is not getting killed at the beginning of the movie. That's just completely cut out. That's the biggest difference which is unfortunate because the movie has this sort of fatalism and so opening with Garrett being killed it's like already the whole thing is like it's it's done. It's like you know it's not going to turn out well. Cedar also added in the scene between Garrett and his wife and at the end of the theatrical cut Jim Aubrey the studio head uh, at the time insisted on this really weird freeze frame with Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid like smiling together. So it's this is really weird, corny freeze frame at the end of it. Other than that, the theatrical cut is basically the same as the Cedor cut, just with CDORE just has the Garrett getting killed at the beginning and the scene with Garrett and his wife. I understand because I, I understand where Cedar is coming from. I'm not a big fan of his cut. I like the more rambling loose rough cut because it just it just to me feels more thematically appropriate. But there's just a bunch of little trims here and there and I don't know which one do you guys prefer.
8: I only know the I think it's the uh the two thousand five cut. I've only seen the one version. Uh, and and read a little bit of the others. Is that the CEDOR cut the two thousand five? I
2: think so. Yeah, yeah. I'm mostly familiar with with the. I guess you're calling it the rough cut. I've heard it called the the Turner Library cut. Peckinpah basically he got a rough
9: cut together, and then he basically kind of just like locked out of of the editing room. He just wasn't able. He he was able to. Uh, I think he was allowed to screen two different, to his own cut and uh, I know he screened it for like Pauline Kael, uh, Martin Scorsese, Jay Cox some of the, those are some of the people that had seen his, his rough cut uh, but then they, they took it away from him. I know Roger Spotswood and some of his other editors did what they could to like really try to fine tune the scenes but Peckinpah always thought of it as a betrayal and I don't think he ever worked with Roger Spotswood again I know that Cedar thinks that the scenes are they work better and they're a little tighter the scenes that the theatrical cut share with the with the rough cut but I I enjoy the rambling nature of of the rough cut I just think Pat Garen, Billy the Kid is not I don't think it's correct to try to have it cut like other Peckinpah films I just did it's just a whole to- totally different in a lot of ways so the the tightness of, like, the
2: getaway I don't think is appropriate for Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Now, in the, the rough cut, do they use the knock on heaven's door for the Slim Pickens pick sequence?
9: Yeah, they use it, with, but without vocals. Peck and paw thought that, I think, using the vocals maybe was underlining the scene a bit too much. But he sort of vacillated between the two. So he he was never able to lock in which one he actually
2: wanted. Yeah, when it comes to Peck and Paw, I can see where he would be the kind of guy because he's a very volatile character, which we've talked about before, when we talked about straw dogs, we talked about Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. I mean, this guy He was one of these guys where it's just like, if you cross a line, he's never going to work with you again. He's never going to forgive you. He just seemed like one of those people that could hold a grudge forever. How dare you cross me, Roger Spottiswood? I will never work with you again. Even if Spottiswood had the best intentions in the world. But I think that Peckinpah was probably in a horrible place by being fired off of his own film. And sometimes being fired off your own film can result in good stuff having your baby taken away from you can actually be a good thing sometimes because you might be the worst parent in the world. And other times it's just like, nope, we should, you know, let see this through to to completion. So at least spot is wood. Didn't add in the famous Jar Jar Binks scene that she wanted to add in. That was good.
9: He was basically in a precarious situation. I think that he really wanted to,
3: no purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
9: Do the best that he could. I got, you know, to, to save the movie uh, under those circumstances. But yeah, Paul took it as a betrayal. And one of the things that's actually really frustrating is that um, Paul later on was offered. He was, he was offered the uh, opportunity to uh, finalize his cut. After after the movie, I I would have to look it up like the specifics of it, but I think he'd already he'd already started on his next film and he just kind of let it go, and uh, he did something very similar with Major Dundee where it was taken away from him and yeah and, and mangled, uh, but then he was offered he was offered the ability to do his own cut of that one too and he didn't do it so. His like self destructiveness. I think sometimes for him, it was um, it was easier to say they took it from me, they ruined it. You know, uh, he he could always just play that sort of because he you know he famously said that all of his movies were taken from him and and and, uh, and ruined except for me um, the Head of Alfredo
2: Garcia. He's like that's the only one that I had complete control on. So let's go ahead and take a break and play a trio of interviews. The first is with the screenwriter of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Rudy Warlitzer. The second is with Bob Dylan scholar David Wolfe. And the third is with the author of – and I have to take a long breath before I say this title because it's so long – Paul Sater, the author of The Authentic Death and Contentious Afterlife of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, The Untold Story of Peck and Paw's Last Western Film. And we'll be back with all of that after these brief messages.
0: You know, the girl from that. The, yes. The, yes, the I know the exactly on you- that. God,
2: I know exactly um, who you're
1: talking about.
0: She has the hair. The,
1: the hair was, it, it was different, and she has the, 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 the lips. She has the lips with the... Okay, yeah, wait. The, she, no, she was just... Okay, you've seen her
2: a million movies. You know But the, who, but the one We're that, talking about the exact same person. Movies, movies,
6: movies,
2: movies, 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 movies. We don't always suck as bad as this, but listen to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony
0: Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions. Sometimes we have the answers.
7: Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon. At 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201.
5: Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the projection booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, WHMPodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the projection booth are talking about good. Party cinema related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards.
10: We hate movies every Tuesday.
7: This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at proudlyresents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one the projection booth mike put so much work into it if you listen to my show i put no work into it enjoy the rest of the show you lucky son of a gun
2: i wanted to know how you made that initial transition between being a novelist and being a film writer how did you get involved with two lane blacktop
11: Monty Hellman read a novel of mine and he liked it a lot, and he was looking for a writer um, to to write uh, to finish up the, the uh, two lane blacktop. So, and I, you know, was looking for work, so it it was a good combination. So I went out there, and um, Monty was a pleasure to work for, and left me alone, and I could do my own thing, and um, it, was, it was great. I was very spoiled because he was you know, wonderful to work for. And I thought, well, it's not so bad writing screenplays. You know, you could be very creative, and little did I know. But anyway, that was a good experience on the two-lane blacktop front.
2: How uh, easy or difficult was it for you to pick up the whole screenplay format versus working uh, more in a prose form?
11: Well, I I did both. You know, I, I I would work out... Doing a screenplay and put in paid my due pay my dues in L.A. and whatever, and then I go up to my uh, shack in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, and 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 do a book, you know. So one supported the other. The, the, the film work helped pay for my other explorations into the world of uh, strange novels, you know. So it, it worked for a while. It was good, and that was before. The corporate takeover of film, so I, I I enjoyed working with various directors out there. I was a good friend of Hal Ashby's and various people Bob downey and it was a different world out there in those days, so it it, it was it was not uh, it was a it was a pleasure actually, and I, I felt grateful for it.
2: Where was two lane blacktop at when you initially came to it? Because I had read that you did rewrites, but it sounds almost like you did it from scratch.
11: Well, it was a very rough script that needed a total, total rewrite. So that's that's what I did. You know, I, I didn't really even look at the other script. I just did my own thing and hung out with a few car uh, nerds in in L.A. and uh, learned the language and. Thought about it and, and went into my own world to do it, so that it was a good experience.
2: It sounds like you and uh, Fred Ruse hit it off. If you guys are still talking today,
11: well, Fred is still handling the, the script I did with uh, Antonioni, and he, he was a good friend uh, in those days when Michelangelo was out in L.A. and we were we uh, Fred was helping with things, and uh, we'll see. You know, I mean, I hope. I hope he can get this one on, because not just for me, but for Antonioni's uh, wife, uh, Enrica, you know, various people that are, have something involved with it. I hope it happens. We'll see. It needs a rewrite, because it's a little dated. But I'm waiting. I'm in the waiting room. I've got my shoes nailed to the floor, so um, we'll see what happens.
2: The thing I always asked writers is, how much they were involved once the screenplay process is done? Because I know some people, they turn in the screenplay, and then they're either asked to walk away or they walk away, and then others are involved throughout the entire process. What was your role when it came to Tuning Blacktop?
11: Well, I was involved. I even played and had a short scene that I was in. Uh, and I, You know, that was at different times, so I was... It was very collaborative and and very uh, the hierarchies weren't so rigid in those days. So I I felt very much a part of the team, so to speak. Uh, you know, little did I realize that that would all change. But I, I it was a good experience, and I, I, I stayed through most of the shooting and helped in various ways that I could. And uh, Mahdi was wonderful to work with. So that that was a great sort of introduction to to that world and uh, i appreciate
2: it how long after that did you get involved with uh glenn and randa with jim mcbride
11: I can't really remember, but I think it might have even been before that. But, you know, in New York was a very different time in those days. And there was no rigid, crystallized separation between the different art forms. And so I knew a lot of people like Klaus Holdenberg that and, and I worked with. And uh, and I knew Jim, and, and and he was just starting out. So we were all sort of on the same plane and and collaborative just by nature. It wasn't. It just happened that way. And Lorenzo Mons, who also worked on the script, um, was a friend. We were all friends. And so when it happened, uh, uh, we all just got together and, and contributed, you know. It was very special in that way. It was a good experience. So Jim was very uh, generous and... We, we were all friends, so there was no uh, this or that, you know?
2: Now, I had read that Monty Hellman was actually supposed to make Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Is that true?
11: I think it was, but the uh, producer, um, Gordon Carroll, yeah, felt that it needed somebody with with a, a different profile that, we could g- g- that he could get the money for it. So, um, I, I mean, I was... Thought it would be fine if Monty did it, but he went with uh, Peck and paw so that's the way it evolved. And um, you know, I, I I liked working with Sam. He was difficult, but but he was original and uh, creative, and and a and a really good director. So and we worked well together. And um, so I went down to Mexico and um, worked with him down there, and. Wrote the, we wrote the script a bit, and um, it was a good experience overall as I look back on it, you
3: know. With the Lucky Landslots, Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
5: This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway, and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky.
3: Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: I had read that he had worked on One-Eyed Jacks well before, I think, Stanley Kubrick got involved. And that some of the ideas from his adaptation of the Henry Jones book then kind of migrated into Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Does that hold any water?
11: Well, I, I, maybe it does. I, I didn't know. It's the first I heard of that. But he he did he make some suggestions about the screenplay that were that were good, especially at the beginning. Uh, that he needed to set it up in a more traditional way, which I did. You know, he, he always brought his own experiences to uh, whatever he was doing, and um, he was very collaborative and creative and difficult and and. Um, but in a, not in a bad way, but in a, certainly in an eccentric way, and I, and I enjoyed working with him, and it was a turbulent experience, but it was a good one, you know. And and I was pretty much left alone to to let the uh, screenplay evolve in my own way, and and he went he went for it, so that was that was great. Man, in those days I was really spoiled. Little did I realize that. It would all change, you know. Yeah, Sam was great, you know. He was he was good, and I got uh, Dylan to be involved, and Chris Christopherson, and various people, and he was very open to all of that, you know.
2: He and Christofferson, I mean, they would end up working together, well, at least uh, another picture, if not more than that. Well, yeah, at least two more that I can think of, Convoy and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Meanwhile, I... Dylan didn't do a whole lot of other acting that I can remember, but how was he to work with on set?
11: He was good. He 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 was very open and and very uh, you know let's see how it plays. And he, he didn't impose him, his, himself. I I called him in the in the rewrite that I that I wrote, for, including him, alias, you know, because he he just wanted to be in another world, and and he was very open and and. Uh, fun to be around you know he, he it was a good experience with him and and in, the music he wrote was great you know knocking on heaven's door was great and he i think he started to write it when we were on the and at the end of the film we were on the plane for going to mexico city or where he he uh, was hanging out with a lot of musicians and he said yeah i gotta go write a I think for the ending it needs something I don't know what it is and then he started on the plane to write uh, knock knock knocking on heaven's door and it just evolved that way so it was all relatively spontaneous. Yeah, the old days.
2: I know that movie changed quite a bit at least throughout the editing process were there a lot of changes kind of before um before you guys even started shooting or even during the shooting?
11: No, not so much during the shooting. Although sometimes the producers came down and didn't really, you know, were a little upset at how eccentric it was being. But then they sort of took it over in the editing, and then uh, Roger Spottiswoode, who was one of the editors, was involved with all of that, and and um, it was it was difficult. But in the end, uh, the the original edit came. The one that you see now is the one that should exist, you know, but the studio wanted to make its imprint, you know, as they were beginning to do in those days. And I, I think the film survived, you know.
2: I've been really trying to get my hands on the novelization of your screenplay just to kind of do a comparison between the two, but it's it's out of print and it is mighty expensive these days. But do you remember some of the differences between those two things, between your screenplay and what we ended up seeing?
11: There were some differences along the way. And then in the final, final imprint of the, of, the, of the screenplay, the final draft of it, it, it was pretty much the way it was. And, and in, in, in this edit, in this final edit, I, I feel good about, you know, so I, I don't feel bet- at all betrayed by that, but it it was a process, you know, and the studio had to make their imprint and they were actually wrong, you know, <laughs> in terms of what we all felt. and uh, But we survived, and the final final thing is uh, works well. You know, I think everyone's satisfied with it.
2: Now, how did you balance being a screenwriter and being a novelist at the same time? Because I know you kind of went back and forth for a while there with doing both.
11: Well, like in those days, working with people like Peckinpah and Monty Hellman, Jim McBride, uh, it was very creative and collaborative. And I didn't feel uh, at all crushed by the you know, going into a room with uh, a corporate room with four suits telling me what they wanted in the screenplay. So I was pretty much left alone to follow my own instincts. And I thought it was a great form. I, I, I related to it, you know, so I thought, well, this is good. This is really fun. And this will be a way to uh, support my w- weird uh, novels that I was writing. So in, in those days, it, it worked well. And then, of course, it changed. But I I was very pleased to be able to go from one to the other. You know, I'd finish a film and then go up to my place in Cape Breton and um, write a book, you know, and then go back and need some, to put some coin on the table so I'd go out to LA again, you know. (laughs) But I was lucky. I I was very fortunate in those days because the people I worked with were were very, creative and uh generous and fun to be around so that was uh, a great uh rhythm but it changed
2: well yeah when did it change when did that uh, that icy hand of uh reality or or the uh the, the not good times when did that happen
11: well probably 10 or 15 years later i don't really remember exactly but uh You know, it it, it didn't happen all at once that it was a corporate takeover, but, uh, uh, you know, the whole show business, um, uh, situation changed, uh, and when it became corporate, then the writer was no longer held the same place, you know, so, uh, you know, and I, I worked out there for several times and didn't have good experiences and so sort of faded back, but, uh, it lasted a long time, and I feel very lucky and, and uh, grateful for what what it allowed me to do in the early days. That so was good, you know?
2: Well, it seemed like, for a little while there, uh, early 90s, you seemed like a very busy man.
11: Well, I was. I did, I did several low road. I liked working on the low road. I feel more comfortable on the low road with uh, Alex Cox. We did a film called Walker, which was... Uh, shot in Nicaragua which is really a good experience and um a few other things that didn't really get on but uh, you know I was I found people that I could work with out there so that was not that that Alex was out there but he was around there and we could and independent films could find the financing to be made you know and um Now it's a different game. It's very difficult because the distribution has taken over and the corporate distribution, and um, so it's hard to be on the low road now. Then I did several short films with Robert Frank, which I really enjoyed, which were always a therapeutic relief to be involved with, and then we did a feature together uh, called Candy Mountain, which we shot in Nova Scotia that I co-directed. That was... A really good experience, and it was like the old days, you know, when the team was all kind of coordinated, and there was equality and all, all the people involved. So that was a good experience, but those days are gone.
2: What was it like working with Bertolucci?
11: It was good. I mean, we we, we uh, he was he was an interesting guy, and I I respected him, and it was fun to work with him. I, I don't feel. Totally great about the f- finished film, but it was, he, he was good to work with, you know. He, he's very smart and, um, you know, it was on a difficult subject that he felt a little bit alienated from. So, but, you know, we went to India together and researched and worked well, and yeah, that was another
2: one. I've read kind of conflicting stories as far as whether you were involved or whether you were, your work was more of an inspiration, but what's the relationship between your work and Dead Man?
11: Jim was a good, really good friend of mine, and, and uh, at some point I wanted him to think about doing Zebulon, um, which was uh, you know this Western that I'd written, and, and then he, he went off and did his own and lifted a lot of the scripture. <laughs> uh on dead man but you know it it, that happens and uh i wish him well and he um it, it wasn't a good experience it sort of um wrecked our friendship but uh you know that's show business and that's what happened and we just go on you know that happens a lot you know it wasn't that big a deal but it was for me at the time because it compromised uh my original script you know
2: well, yeah, that's got to be tough for you, because now you can't take that and sell it or do anything else with it, because... Well,
11: the original script is, is now, as I said, Josh is trying to get it on, and we'll see, you know? I mean, it, it, you know, things survive, and people have forgotten about Dead Man, and, you know, I, I, I don't know. It was certainly put a crimp in, in that process for me, but, uh, you know, hey, it's not the first time that's happened. That happens a lot, you know? So that's and Jim's a, Jim's a good guy and he's a good director, but he he uh, it would have been good if he had acknowledged uh, where his where the resources came from and the, all that you know. But uh, I wish him well.
2: You mentioned a little bit before we started the interview about uh, working with Antonioni. Was that the two telegrams?
11: Yeah, two telegrams. That's still out there. <laughs> Uh, it, it's a little dated now, so it needs a rewrite. So I'm waiting to see if that's
2: going to happen. Are you doing more screenwriting these days, or novel writing, or kind of a
11: back I'm to the work, mix of I'm working on a, 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 a book right now. I'm not really encouraged to set sail on the rewriting on the uh, screenwriting process. So I, I'm a little alienated from L.A. and the corporate world out there so you know if somebody came around that i that i really related to and was creative with and felt a uh, you know good energy with i i I might do it but that hasn't happened because i'm not out there you know i'm in a different world now i have connections in canada because i can work as a landed immigrant out there and you know maybe i'll do something out there on the low road. You know, I don't, I don't know. You know, it's, it depends what happens at this stage, but right now I'm just doing my own work and that feels, I'm very grateful to be able to do that. You know?
2: Well, I was really happy to see a lot of your books coming back into print.
11: Yeah, they all come back. They, I have a small press that, that puts them out and they they're all have been re- reprinted in Europe and here. And, um, yeah, they they keep uh, dribbling along, <laughs> so that's good, you know. You know, I'm very grateful to be able to do my own work. You know, it's not not given to all of us to be able to do that, so I I, I feel lucky in that way. At my age, just being crouched on that long bench in front of the Trails End Saloon, I'm I'm really grateful to um, be able to do pursue my own. Weird, however, it remains uh, creative impulses, so still working.
2: <laughs> well, hey, thank you so much for your time. This has been a real pleasure talking with you.
11: Okay, Mike, let me know if you need anything more. <laughs>
2: Me, how did you get into
10: bob dylan's music when i was 17 in 1990 i was a big guns and roses fan i uh, i loved appetite for destruction and the use your illusion albums had just come out use your illusion one and use your illusion two and on i believe it was two there was a uh, a cover version of knocking on heaven's door which Will relate to this uh, this podcast since that was the uh, the big villain song in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. I would mention how I like Guns N' Roses and "Knocking on Heaven's Door" is one of the songs I liked on the album. And a friend of mine at the uh, gym I was working out in, and he was older than I was. I was seventeen; he was like thirty-two. And when I mentioned Guns N' Roses, it's like, yeah, it's okay, but you know, Bob Dylan is the best. Nothing compares to Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan's Knocking on Heaven's Door is better than Guns N' Roses. So I was aware of a few Bob Dylan songs, and I didn't even know the name of one of them. But uh, it, to me, it was called Everybody Must Get Stoned. And they would play that on K-Rock. And its actual title is Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35, sort of a nonsense title. And another song I liked that I heard on K-Rock was Like a Rolling Stone. So I asked to borrow the two albums with, uh, and I didn't know they were separate albums. I just asked to borrow the albums that had Like a Rolling Stone and the song I referred to mistakenly as Everybody Must Get Stoned. And those two songs happened to be on uh, Highway 61 Revisited, which was uh, Like a Rolling Stone was on that. It led off the album. And on the follow-up to Highway 61 Revisited, uh, Blonde on Blonde, that led off with Rainy Day Women, the song I called Everybody Must Get Stone. So he lent me those two albums and, you know, I borrowed them mainly to hear those two songs, which I enjoyed. And I listened to the albums and was completely floored by what I heard. Everything to that point in time. And I had, I had become a Guns N' Roses fan. And throughout high school and maybe a little before high school, I was really into Billy Joel. And I kind of feel like <clears throat> Billy Joel is sort of the gateway uh, singer-songwriter to Bob, <laughs> in a way. And um, everything I'd ex- experienced until that point in time, even the, the, my favorite albums, or what I guess you could call the greatest albums, there would be a number of songs that I loved that really uh, hit me. Maybe four or five songs. If I, if it was a really great album, six or seven songs. But then there was the filler that I fast forward through. And I, I don't know if everyone's experience was like that, but I had never found an album where, you know, just song after song after song was just extraordinary. And on these two albums, that, that was the experience. And in fact, I would say the, uh, the whole on both of them, Adds up to more than the sum of the parts. And the sum of the parts is itself, you know, each and every song. I, I, Rainy Day Women, uh, Everybody Must Get Stoned, which is, you know, the nonsense title and sort of a Salvation Army nonsense song is, is easily the worst song on that album. But even that, it adds to, to the, 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 the entirety of, of the experience. Like Blonde on Blonde is, and along with Highway 61, they're both commonly considered his best album. You either consider one or the other his best album. Maybe Blood on the Tracks is thrown in there, too. I, I listened to these these CDs, and I, I was just blown away. Visions of Johanna on, uh, on Blonde on Blonde. Desolation Row on Highway 61 Revisited. I, I never heard anything like this. And it struck me as... As if these albums could have been released then, you know, that day. This was 1990. I was in high school. These, these albums had been released. Oh God, 25 years earlier, which now doesn't strike me as that, much, that long ago. But when I was 17, you know, it was, it was my parents' generation. And, uh, I quickly, I mean, really quickly, I'm obsessive compulsive and. Everything I get into, I get into really obsessively. Either I get into it or I don't. That's pretty much it. I either full steam ahead or nothing. And I went through his entire catalog, uh, devoured it within a year, maybe a year and a half, all 35 or so studio albums he had released at that point. And then I was also precociously into computers and that whole online scene very early and there was a little Dylan community forming at that point on prodigy i think i was on at that time and some very generous souls because i had nothing to trade in return uh sent me some bootlegs and what i discovered was that there was stuff that he had held back which was at least as good as the stuff he had released which it was also just as shocking. You'd get these bootleg releases and you'd start questioning his judgment as to why he decided not to release some songs that uh, were, again, at least as great as as the greatest stuff he had already been writing and singing back in the 60s, his peak of 65, 66. And he peaked again 10 years later. And you could argue over whether he – ever reach those heights again i think he clearly did especially in the 1980s which he gets a bad rap for but that's when his uh his judgment as far as what to release was at its worst where he pulled back songs that he 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 released albums that could have been as great and i'm not even exaggerating as great as blonde on blonde and highway 61 Uh, Infidels could have been as great as those albums. Time Out of Mind his comeback album which actually won the uh, album of the year he left the three or four best songs off the album.
2: What was Dylan's relationship with Hollywood with movie making?
10: Every question is complicated when it comes to Bob I, I think Bob is obviously very much a movie buff. You can even see that in his songs some of his most Most famous lines, which are attributed to Bob, uh, come from movies. Like, for instance, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, which is in subterranean homesick blues. Probably around the 1990s, I was devouring all the film noirs I could find, and I ran across this one that I thought was horrible, and I still think it's horrible. It's called Blonde Ice, and that line is in there. And he must have seen that movie probably late at night on television. And I don't know if he wrote the line down because he would sometimes do that or if it just subconsciously came back to him. But I think it must have – the line is right in the movie, so it must have come from there. And then another of his most famous uh, famous lines from the 1960s, to live outside the law, you must be honest. That's an uh, absolutely sweet Marie, which is on Blonde, on Blonde that I discovered comes from the lineup, another film noir. And that's actually a pretty, a really good film noir in my estimation. That's uh, Don Siegel's. And and that line is right in there. So again, whether it was consciously or subconsciously, I think the providence of those two big Dylan lines are, are right in the movies. In 1985, uh, he released Empire Burlesque. And that album is filled with lines from Humphrey Bogart movies, from Maltese Falcon, from The Big Sleep. He's got the line, Don't Look For Me, I'll See You, which is right out of the Maltese Falcon, several others. Then he had another song called Brownsville Girl. Earlier, An earlier version, which was better, was called Danville Girl. But that whole entire song is centered around Gregory Peck and going to see the movie The Gunfighter. Which he alludes to, he never actually names the gunfighter, but he talks about standing in line to see a movie starring Gregory Peck, and that he'd do it any time. A lot of his story type of songs, you uh, they play in your mind like a movie, and a song like Hurricane, which uh, is like seven minutes long, to me, it's more resonant and more powerful than the actual movie that was made on this uh, of the story. And Dylan does that in seven minutes in what's probably not even one of his best songs. He won an Oscar for Things Have Changed, which was in Curtis Hansen's Wonder Boys. He was, he seemed to have been very proud, unless it was another one of Dylan's, you know, he's a bit of a jokester, but he, uh, he displayed that Oscar on tour for, I think for a few years. It was right up there on stage with him. But so, so those are some of his, I would say some of the influences as far as his relationship to Hollywood. I think, well, he had some documentaries. D.A. Baker made uh, Don't Look Back, which was a, to- a documentary of his 1965 tour of England. It was right before, uh, it was actually right after he had, quote-unquote, gone electric, but he was still playing acoustic concerts. And uh, England was a... L- they were like six months or maybe a year behind what he was doing in the U.S. So he's still playing all his uh, what he would, I guess, call finger pointing songs or some acoustic songs from bringing it all back home. But you could tell he was kind of bored with the material. Uh, and he's also kind of putting on an act, a real bratty act, too. But uh, D.A. Penny Baker has said that, you know. It's a documentary, but Dylan was well aware that the cameras were on. Uh, one of the things you can see, and I don't think it's much of an act, is how he treated really, really shabbily uh, Joan Baez, who had done a lot for him by that point in time. She had come out on tour with him, expecting to go on stage with him. He didn't even bring her on stage. She uh, she leaves at some point in the movie, and she actually left the tour at that point. And I think I think even the door closes. It's sort of symbolic on uh on their relationship at the time. I don't know if he used her per se, but he, he doesn't come off that. He doesn't come off well in that movie. And then Penny Baker also filmed what should have been a documentary of the 1966 tour of England, which was after he had already gone electric and he was touring England with his uh, electric band called the band. They were the Hawks then renamed the band and Dylan would play half the show with his acoustic, uh, songs, the crowd would love it. And then he'd bring on the band for the set with, uh, with electric music and the crowd would boo. <laughs> so, uh, they, they filmed this for a documentary that was called Eat the Document, which I think it may have aired once on UK television, but, uh, it hasn't been released since then. A lot of the footage, really a lot more, of the footage and actually aired in the documentary, then made it into Martin Scorsese's No Direction Home, which is actually probably the best documentary you could find on any single period of Dylan, which is a focus on 65, 66. And it has at least a half hour, maybe an hour of that footage. But eventually, you know, we lead to Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which is Dylan's first actual uh, interaction with Hollywood, or uh, I, I, I guess he didn't actually have any interaction with MGM, but he saw what was going on, and he took some lessons from that experience. You know, Sam Peckinpah was fighting with MGM throughout that production, and Dylan was watching, and the whole time he he thought it turned Peckinpah into a madman. And the lesson he turned from it, it, it learned from it, was that you cannot uh, commercialism and and artistic vision don't go hand in hand and Hollywood's not going to let you uh, create your vision. And then Dylan made his own movie, <laughs> quote unquote movie, I guess, Ronaldo and Clara. And uh, he, that, that he filmed in during the 1975 rolling thunder review tour. And it was released in 77 or 78. It was four hours long It was shot with a handheld camera. It was all improv. Dylan played Ronaldo. I think, I think his then wife Sarah played Clara. Someone else played Bob. This movie was supposed to have something to say about identity. Janet Maslin, I think it was, reviewed it in the New York Times and called it a home movie. It played for a week or so in New York and L.A. and disappeared quickly. It was better received in Europe. And generally, Dylan has been taken more seriously in Europe. And uh, they, they treated it as as a work of art. I've watched it several times. It's, it's only available on bootlegs. The best quality version is probably one that has, I think, German subtitles. It's an endurance test to watch. He actually edited it down to an hour and a half of concert footage, which is much more enjoyable. I know some people who consider it a masterpiece. I am not among them. And I think the, the, the funny thing about this too, to me, I think the negative reception actually hurt his feelings. And I don't think anything anyone's ever said about his music has ever hurt him. I think he's always been very confident and where he's going. He, he's gotten booed several times in his career and even back in high school. And I, I don't think it bothered him. I think he knew that what he was doing was valuable and, and and worthwhile. And when it came to this movie, maybe there was a little bit more insecurity since that's not, it wasn't his thing. And maybe he, deep down, wasn't certain that he created anything worthwhile with this movie. I'm not sure he did. I, I don't know if you'd want to sit through it. <laughs> but uh yeah ronaldo and clara the uh four hour quote-unquote home movie which is probably a more accurate description of it than a than an actual movie but he ended up making it that way and distributing it the way he did based on the experience he had or, or the experience sam peckinpah had with uh, pat garrett and billy the kid
2: well how did he get involved with peckinpah and pat garrett
10: rudy Wurlitzer was a uh was friends with bob and he asked Bob to do something for the soundtrack. So Dylan read the script, liked it, and wrote the song "Billy." So then, uh, I guess Dylan was the one who had the idea that he wanted to be in the movie. And I also, I'm not sure exactly why, but I think maybe he just wanted to go to Durango with his family and get away from New York. But like around Thanksgiving '72, he goes to Durango to meet with Peckinpah. And playing Billy and this other song he had written called Goodbye, Holly, which ended up not making the movie. But Peckinpah wasn't – I think Peckinpah knew of him but didn't really think – didn't know much of him. You know, he knew Bob Dylan existed but didn't know much about Bob Dylan. And Chris Christopherson and James Coburn actually had to convince Peckinpah to even meet with Bob. So Peckinpah meets with him. Dylan plays – a few songs for him. I think uh, Billy and Goodbye Holly and maybe one or two others. And Peckinpah was actually blown away. Peckinpah loved the guy. And, he, and Peckinpah offers Dylan a role in the movie and leaves it to Wurlitzer to figure out what Bob should do. And so then Wurlitzer slots Bob for Alias. And my understanding is Alias' role, probably because Bob's acting range was limited, was gradually reduced. Originally, Alias, I think, was supposed to have a stuttering aspect to his character. And I think maybe they filmed some footage with Bob doing the stuttering a- alias, and that footage got destroyed. There was some accident early on. But, uh, eventually the character totally changed from that stutterer. That, that was removed. And I think some other, uh, I think his role actually was reduced in the movie as well. And, uh, Peckinpah's battling with MGM made it a rough shoot. And I think that may have also impacted Bob's role in the movie and how, uh, and how Bob would actually act while he was filming it. I I don't think Bob was that. Bob's wife, his then wife, Sarah was not having a good time. Bob seeing what was going on with Peckinpah wasn't having a good time. And Bob's a surly character to begin with eccentric and could be uncommunicative, and i think he became more so in all those respects so in any case bob ends up going to record the soundtrack and this and i and i think peckinpah sends this guy jerry fielding in to supervise bob doing the soundtrack and bob had worked on it a little bit i think in mexico city and not much of that made the movie and then he goes to california after the filming's done and that's where he's recording the rest of the soundtrack. And at this point, Fielding considered Dylan, and I'm quoting here, an amateur who writes for teeny boppers. So Dylan eventually brings Fielding. He brings him all this material that, he doesn't, that Fielding doesn't like. And then he brings Fielding knocking on heaven's door. And according to Fielding, and this is a quote too, everybody loved it. It was shit. That was the end for me. So, you know, I could leave it to anyone listening to this to determine for themselves whether knocking on heaven's door is shit. But the fact of it is that, you know, it's one of Dylan's most enduring songs. It's one of his most covered songs. Like I mentioned earlier, Guns N' Roses covered it. Warren Zevon covered it right before he died. It was a hit single. I don't know. To me, it's mournful and ethereal. It's, and it's all, I mean, it's not one of Dylan's songs that you know needs much in the way of interpretation. It's not one of those deep songs, but it strikes a chord. It strikes a chord with me too because it was released the the week before I was born or the week after I was born. I was born in August '73, and it was released, I think, the end of August '73. After the shoot's finished, I don't know what happened during the editing. I I, I my understanding is again MGM took control from peckinpah but the music and everything i mean you know peckinpah ended up releasing a director's cut many years later but the music was not used in the correct places except for knocking on heaven's door and dylan was very disappointed with the way it, with the way it went and the, the way it played out what
2: is your impression of Peck Airden and billy the kid as far as the movie goes
10: and I think this is more a matter of taste than anything. I'm not a fan of Peckinpah's. I'm not a I'm not a big Western guy. The only Western I truly love is Once Upon a Time in the West. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. I've watched it three times or so, and it kind of bores me. <laughs> I uh, you know I I find Bob Dylan a charismatic individual, and when he's on screen, I am definitely my attention turns towards him. But the movie itself, even in the director's cut, doesn't do it for me. But then again, Straw Dogs doesn't either. And I have to admit, the Wild Bunch doesn't either. What are
2: some of your favorite songs off the soundtrack?
10: The sound it's a soundtrack album and I've listened to it mostly when I'm trying to relax. Knocking on Heaven's Door I love. And there are several different Billy is like Billy 1, Billy 4. They're all, you know, listenable. And and it's highly instrumental. It got negative reviews, which I don't think it deserved because I think it is a movie soundtrack. And I think there were weird expectations. Uh, Rolling Stone gave, gave it a bad review. And I don't know if they were anticipating, you know, there's no such thing as a typical Dylan album. But, you know, obviously a movie soundtrack would not be. So it got negative reviews, but I, I, I like it. I can't say any songs except "Knocking on Heaven's Door really stand out, though. But Knocking on, Knockin on Heaven's Door, is a lovely song.
2: After Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, you mentioned Ronaldo and Clara. It's weird that whole idea of identity, I guess, would come back with uh, I'm Not Here. It sounds like that kind of almost speaks
10: to what he was doing. Absolutely. I'm Not There. Yeah. The Todd Haynes movie, which I love. That's that's tied with Big Lebowski for my favorite movie of all time, which, as we know, is distinct from best movie of all time. So, right. So, yeah, I'm not there. Uh, I, I felt like it was uh, – I actually had tears in my eyes at the end of that movie. The first, I saw it opening day, and I felt like it was a gift because – and it's a movie that can certainly be appreciated, especially by film lovers, but to be appreciated on a Dylan level, you have to be a hardcore fanatic of this guy and that that's what struck me uh, you know, this this movie was made for me i could not believe it and, and in not trying to capture bob dylan he, he really captures him you know and he, he's got uh, six different actors playing bob including kate blanchett who looks just like him and has his mannerisms down from that 1966 1965 66 period so, but you are absolutely correct. I, identity is a theme throughout his music and in that movie that is about him. And he's, he's constantly uh, created personas and destroyed them again and again and again, created his myth and destroyed his myth uh, for 50 years now. And, um, and I'm not there summarizes it very, very well. And I, uh, that's great insight. By
2: adopting Bob Dylan as his, you know, stage name, that kind of already helps set up one of these levels of identity. And then it's interesting that his name in in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is alias. That it's not even alias whatever. It's not alias. It's not Robert Zimmerman alias Bob Dylan. It's just alias. It's just the middle
10: part. And, and again, that comes up again and again. Uh, Stephen Scobie uh, wrote a book on uh, about Bob Dylan and identity, and it's one of the better. Studies of Bob uh, Stephen Scobie is a really really smart guy. You could see it tangled up in blue where he switches from I to he, and it's all clearly him. You know, <laughs> you is it. he, and he's mentioned it. He said, "You." Anytime I say you, it's about me. You know, and then he and then he talks about he wrote a song. It's on Desire, and actually Desire has a song called Romance and Durango, which I think is you know, obviously inspired. By his experience on uh, on the set in Mexico, but he wrote a song called Sarah, which you know everyone and I think reasonably assumed was about his then wife Sarah. And he's even on he's even quoted as taking issue with that. You know how do you know that's not about a different Sarah, Sarah of my dreams? And he, he's someone who will never ever answer a question about what a song means if he even knows. You know I think he very much feels like a conduit. He said that all these songs existed before he was here. You know, these songs have always existed.
2: Well, Ronaldo and Clara comes out 78 and then it takes another, what, nine years before he's in another film with hearts of fire. Hearts of fire.
10: Oh God. Hearts of fire with Fiona. Oh, it's hearts of fire is, uh, a star is born. I think, uh, reworking of it and it's terrible. It's, it's, it's an awful movie there is a, there's a fantastic though maybe two minute sequence where he plays a couple more years for her and that's wonderful and you can actually find that online so you don't have to sit through the movie you can see the only worthwhile point in that movie is Dylan playing a couple more years for you I got a couple more years on you that's all and it's really really beautiful but yeah that's uh, I don't know why he did that movie exactly uh, maybe a paycheck are there any
2: movies that he was in that you enjoy?
10: Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. He uh, he then made Mastin Anonymous in 2003 with Larry Charles. And actually, if you have time, there's an interesting story that led to that movie. He uh, – he, Dylan was going through a, a slapstick Jerry Lewis period where uh, on the tour bus he was watching Jerry Lewis movies, I guess again and again and again. And had in his head that he wanted to make a slapstick TV series. And so he arranged it that he'd have a, uh, a meeting with HBO. And so they go to attend this meeting, which is going to be about this, this proposal for a slapstick series. And he's, he shows up, he's got his, he looks like a cowboy. He's got this cowboy regalia that he's wearing at that point in time, probably early two thousands. And, one of the guys, I think from HBO, I think that's what the story is. If I'm remembering it correctly, tells him that, oh, you know, I loved seeing you at uh, at Woodstock in '69, and Dylan didn't play Woodstock in '69. You know, he he actually they had Woodstock in Woodstock in '69, at least partially to try to because Dylan was living there, try to coax Dylan out of hibernation where he'd pretty much been since his motorcycle accident. 1966 and Dylan instead left the country and later on in a Rolling Stone interview he said the sum total of all this bullshit was Woodstock and I had to get out of there it seemed to have something to do with me so this guy says oh I love seeing it Woodstock and Dylan did play the second Woodstock in 1994 which is also I guess ironic in a way that he actually ends up playing the the reunion Woodstock but uh at that point I don't know what it, it how it, have, it must have offended him in some real fashion because Dylan spent the rest of this meeting staring out the window and uh, <laughs> and, and the guy I guess one of the people that came to the meeting with him one of his one of his agents or managers turns to the other guy and says he's like a special needs child and it, it, in a lot of ways he seems like he's a savant you know. Uh, In in some ways, where you, where, where in the 1980s, when he would hold back his best material and you question, you're like, does he even realize or is he doing it on purpose? Which he may be, you know, Hey, builds the legend, hold back your best music. And then when it comes out, I'm like, Oh my God. But, or is he, or is he just not even a good judge of it? Which, you know, can lend your, lend itself to the, uh, savant theory. Which is me, you know, he doesn't even, doesn't even know what he has necessarily. He ends up getting out of this slapstick phase because I think he's also like, I'm obsessive. He, 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 he has a lot of obsessive fans and I think he himself is quite obsessive, but it, it, it somehow leads to, uh, and Anonymous, which is, I, I think a pretty great movie and it becomes more resonant as, uh, time goes on. It's a, it's a dystopian entry. He's a rock and roller. He's the son of a dictator. It's you know, it's uh, it, it looks to be America after some type of civil war. The dictator has taken over, and he's a renegade son. Dylan's this renegade son who, who's bailed out of jail to do a benefit concert. It's uh, it's sort of a desolation row in movie form, and uh, you know, it's got a lot of a lot of stars were in it: John Goodman, Val Kilmer jessica lang jeff bridges penelope cruz they all they all wanted to be in a movie with bob dylan and i think it got mixed reviews really but uh i i like it a lot uh he, i think he wrote it pseudonymously and it, it it really has that sort of uh musical flair to the dialogue it definitely has a Dylan flair to it and i would recommend that one highly especially and i i I'd mentioned to you that uh it's it's consistent with uh, the dystopian theme. So if you wanted to check that out, I, I think you might like it.
2: If you were to have to choose one Bob Dylan album so that people who are listening to this podcast who maybe aren't into Dylan, that would get them hooked on him, what's that one album? I know that's an unfair
10: question. It's not really an unfair question because that's, I think, maybe how you hook people, Right with that one album uh, more so than just a collection of songs i think i would say blonde on blonde that would be the one i would go with Uh, blonde on blonde or highway 61 revisited and i think i would choose blonde on blonde although others would say highway 61
2: david thank you so much for your time tonight
10: my pleasure mike
2: curious how you got interested in film, and especially in the study of film.
0: Well, I don't know. I've just always, I mean, I always loved films. I mean, loved movies and all that. And I, you know, I was reviewing movies for the college newspaper and uh, I was a literary, literature major at college. I saw The Wild Bunch in 1969 and I felt what Emily Dickinson said when she said, you know, you're in the presence of poetry when you feel the top of your head coming off. It's one thing to
2: see a movie and connect with it that much, but then to have dedicated so
0: much time to that film and to the works of Peckinpah, how did you make that leap? Think back in the late 60s. What did most of us want to do, you know, try to stay out of the war and stay out of Vietnam? And I wasn't much for draft dodging, so I, uh, I went on to graduate school, and I knew as soon as I saw The Wild Bunch that I wanted to write about this director's work and, and its subsequent acquaintance, you know, with his work only strengthened my regard for it. I wanted to get an edge, a better education than I felt I had to do the kind of job on his work that I thought it deserved. That basically is, is the answer to the question. I, I, I wanted to write a book on him and I went to, uh, the University of Iowa, which had a, really wonderful American Studies Department because I didn't want to do it under the aegis of a film department. I thought that was just too narrow for the significance of his work. The University of Iowa, which at that time had one of the very best American studies department in the country, and a professor of mine I really admired had gone there, so there there was uh you know, so that was another reason. So um and they gave me a very nice, I mean, I got an NDA fellowship for three years to do my work there. So anyway, then when I got out, uh, my first job, ironically enough, or coincidentally enough, turned out to be at the University of Southern California, the English department, where Peckinpah got his master's degree in 1954. You know, after a while, there, there begins to see something a little, uh, you know, sort of faded about it, if you will. And, you know, the book was published in 1980, and I've always been happy. I've always been pleased that, you know, it's never been out of print. And despite the fact that there are well over 36 books on Top since then, mine is still widely regarded as the best critical study. Well, it came out in '80, and then it's been republished, what, at least three times now? Twice. Um, it came out in oh. 1980, and then I... I called it a reconsideration. The reason why I did that is that that was actually an homage to a professor of mine, a man named Philip Young at Penn State, who had written what I still think of, as many still think of, as the best critical study of the works of Hemingway. And when Phil brought out a a new edition of his book, he called it, Ernest Hemingway, a reconsideration. So when I called my and Father Western films a reconsideration, I mean, people who know me know that that's an homage to, to Phil's work.
2: Tell me about your relationship with Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, because not only have you written what many consider to be the book about the film and the making of the film, but then you also had a hand
0: in doing one of the edits of the movie as well. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid was a film I've I've wrestled with for a good while. I I think, as the book makes clear, I mean, I I do think it's a seriously flawed film that also happens to be a great film. That happens in films more than you might know. I'm one of the few persons who's actually written a critical study of Peckinpah's work who was able to see all of the cut scenes well before. They became available on the 1988 Turner Special Edition um because I knew Peckinpah's daughter. I got I I got to know I I know the whole family, but I I got to know Peckinpah's daughter, his oldest daughter, Sharon. And as my book was basically in galleys, the first edition, she said, you know, Paul. Somebody just dropped off. I have this box of film things in my hand, and it says Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Is this something you'd be interested in seeing? You know, I'm trying to keep glasses from falling off the table and so on. And Roger Spotswood, one of Peckinpah's editors, and also the, prin- the first editor, the principal editor on Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, was at that time helping out Sidney Pollack on the movie Electric Horseman that he was doing at uh, Universal. So one Saturday I went out there and Roger ran all the portions of the film for me. I was the first and for the long time, longest time, the only person who was able to write about these themes with, with actually seeing them. And I have to say I was I was a little sobered seeing them because uh, at least one of them, I think, was not very good, the Tucker hotel scene. In fact, I think it's positively bad. I think it's one of the worst scenes Beck and ever directed. You know, having seen it only once under those circumstances, and Sam was still alive at the time, and you had to be a bit careful because, you know, you could say things that could seriously affect him getting work. So I just decided to put the best possible face I could on it And then it wasn't until I wrote the the second edition, the special edition, which, by the way, has about 30% new material in it, published in 1997, then I was much more candid about how I felt about the 1988 preview vis-a-vis the um, theatrical release of 1973, I think that the theatrical release has been very unfairly maligned by a lot of critics. I mean, they call it either the butchered version or they call it the Aubrey version or the MGM version, etc. Now, it is true that MGM forced them to release a shorter version of the film but the actual work was not done by MGM themselves. It was done by Peck and Pa's editors working with Melnick. And you know, it's not true as people pointed, as people tried to argue, that Sam was kicked off the lot and barred from the cutting room. He wasn't. He had an office there, and he came there every day, most every day, anyhow. And he probably could have reinvolved himself with it at any time. I mean, as I explained in the book, I think there were a lot of reasons why he chose not to, and not least of them being it was a little more advantageous for him to be able to say, well, this could have been a really great film if the studio hadn't trashed it, which was the line for a long time. But he said, if you could see my version in any event. I had remarked in the first edition of the book that the only way you could see what Peckinpah had in mind is if you were able to see the television version, which restored the wife scene, and then the 1988 preview or whatever, when that came out, you try to edit them all together in your mind. Well, that gave Nick Redmond the idea when in the uh, in 2005, Warners decided to release a set of all Peckinpah's westerns, and Nick who was the producer of my documentary on The Wild Bunch, and he, he, he basically became the de facto producer of the of the uh, Warner Brothers box, he said, look, why don't we just have Paul do what he said in, in his book, which is to take the theatrical release and restore these scenes to them. He pitched that without even asking. So the long and the short of it is I did that. I mean, I, I made the argument that I... I, I think, for one thing, the 1988 preview, there, there is no finished version of either of the previews. They exist only with temp tracks, without final color correction or anything like that. Nevertheless, there are some Peckinpah aficionados and, and a couple of critics. And you have to understand, Peckinpah is one of those artists for whom people... Develop an intense identification, and you you have these people who really think they own him. I mean, I, I'm sure some people would accuse me of the same thing, but I think you'll discover if you check the facts that I've always been very generous with my research and and so forth on on, on Peck and Pa. These guys, I mean, they would make statements like, you know, obviously Peck and Pa. I mean, one one. Writer, for example, online said that that I didn't intercut the Coburn frolicking with the prostitutes with Billy killing Al- Alamosa Bill, and where he got this, that this is the Peck and Pond tended this, I have no idea because I've read every version of the screenplay, I've seen every version of the film, I've talked with everybody associated with making the film. Including Rudolf Wurlitzer the writer and Sam himself, the director, that that was never anybody's idea at any point. But you have I mean part of the problems, I'm sure you realize, Mike, with the internet, is that unfortunately it gives you know it gives every idiot with time on his hands and a computer the opportunity to declare himself a genius or a historian or a critic, or this, that, or the other. and Unfortunately, a lot of this has happened with Peckin' Talk, and, and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid in particular. And Mike, Nick, and I, actually we thought everybody would be thrilled to have a version of the film. And in fact, most were who understood the issues, but there was a small but very noisy and very vocal contingent of the internet that just pilloried us up one side and down the other it didn't help that Warner Brothers did a pretty shoddy job of releasing that boxed set. It was really, it it was not nearly the classy set it should have been. And despite my offer to sit in on, you know, the dubbing sessions and so forth and to help with the color timing, all of which I was doing for free. No, no, no. And so there are places in the film where the music isn't right and the balances aren't right. And, Anyhow, it was, generally speaking, a kind of pretty depressing affair. And even now, (laughs) if I had had more time, and I had precious little time to do this, I would like to redo it. I mean, I could figure out a way to put back the original title sequence. That is still the best version of the film, and yet at the same time, it's never going to be any ideal version of the film because the fundamental fact is that Sam never finished it, and he walked away without finishing it. You know, and nobody's ever going to be happy with any version of the film, as I try to explain. I mean, there, there's no version of the film that is going to be that is going to be satisfactory to everybody because everybody thinks, oh. You've got to have this, and you got to have that. I mean, there's one scene of the film, The Tuckerman's Hotel sequence, which I think is so badly directed and acted, and so forth that i I deliberately left did not put it back into in into the theatrical and i i'm I, I still think it's better it's better without it because you know it's just so badly done that I don't think Sam he had been thinking straight would ever have left it in there but you know the way in which this thing should have been released and the way in which i tried to talk them into releasing it they should have had all in the same box the original theatrical release the 1988 turner preview the second preview which has the wife scene in it which the first preview never did and then the special edition and if you want to get really fancy about in that cockamamie television version where they cut out so much of the violence that they had to put back in some of the cut scenes, like the wife scene, in order to, and the, the um, Chisholm scene, in order to fill out the time slot. That's sort of how I how I wound up doing all of that. And I wish that Warner Brothers had had spent more money on it and given me a bit more time to do it properly. It still could be done if they wanted to spend the money on it, and God knows. It wouldn't cost that much to do it. What brought about the decision to
2: write exclusively about that and to write the whole sordid history of
0: the film? I got so upset. I stopped reading these online remarks. I mean, I just got so upset by it that when Michael Bliss put out a new an, an anthology of new essays of Peckinpah on Peckinpah in. Uh, 2012, I think it was published, or 13. And so around 2009, he asked me to write an essay for it, and I didn't want to do it. I was working on my films at the time, and I was busy teaching and all this and that, and I just didn't want to write. I just didn't feel like writing this again. And he kept pestering me to do it, and I guess I had gone online someplace and read about, read, somebody else who who said, CEDOR did this and CEDOR did that, which was in no way what, what I had done, anything close to what I had done. So I called Michael and I said, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll write an essay on how I came to prepare the special edition of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and what went into it. Well, the essay turned out to be about 26,000 words long. And so, famous last words, I said to my wife, you know, I might have the beginnings of a small book here. 150,000 additional words later, and five or so, three or four or five years, uh, there's the book. So I, I expanded on the original essays, and that basically became part two of the book. And then I I mean, really, in 20 minutes one morning, I said to myself, okay, so where do you go from here? Well, you talked about how it came out. You might as well talk about where, where did it come from? And you can draw an almost direct line from Garrett's book that he wrote, ghost wrote, you know, less than a year after he killed Billy the Kid, the Peckinpah's film. And uh, so I, I started Garrett's Narrative. And then the next thing, you know, the next thing out of Garrett's narrative, I went to Charles Nider's screenplay, which is Charles Nider's novel, The Authentic Death of Henry Jones, which was the second screenplay that he adapted. So after I wrote about Nider's book, then I wrote the next one was Peckinpah's screenplay, his early screenplay, parts of which he used in the film, then Wurlitzer's, Peckinpah's adaptation, Wurlitzer's screenplay, his original screenplay of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and then Peckinpah's, Peckinpah's changes, and that, and then, the only thing I did, I looked at that and I said, I just gotta do one change here, because I wanna begin with Peckinpah. So, I pulled out the first five or so, five or six pages, four or five pages, from the original essay, which was about Marlon Brando's One Eyed Jacks, for which Peckinpah wrote the screenplay that was his One Eyed Jack, that was his Henry Jones screenplay. So the first chapter was called Brando's Western, and that let me begin with Peckinpah. Then I could go back and bring it back to Peckinpah. And you know, the funny thing was that I was, I didn't know what I was going to do for part three of the book. I knew it couldn't end where I ended, that I had to do. Further thoughts on the totality of the movie and my my relationship to the movie. And a friend of mine, one of my old friends, was out and he was out visiting. And what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, Wayne. What I'm going to do with it? I I have to come up with something there. And then, you know, William Carlos Williams' poem, you know, Thirteen Ways of Looking at a Blackbird, popped into my head, and I thought, that's it. That's what I'm going to do because. I had a number of things I wanted to say about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, but I really didn't want to do the work of writing a structured essay. To, I can tell you that honestly is the case. And when that popped into my head, then I realized I had all this stuff I had already written about the film. You know how if you're writing a book, you know, you'll, you know you're writing along, and then you have this passage, and, well, this doesn't belong here, but I'll set it aside. So I had long stuff in footnotes and I had and then there was some other stuff I wanted to write about and then I realized that it was it was the perfect ending for this the first perfect last section third section for this book because the whole theme of the thing is we're dealing with an unfinished work 10 ways of looking at a you know, at an unfinished masterpiece and its director, you know, that these are just 10 ways. You'll come up with 10 more. And if you talk to me in 10 years, if I'm around to talk about it, I'll probably have 10 more too. So it it worked out very, very nicely. It seems like such an arduous thing because you're dealing with
2: memories and sometimes forgotten memories. I mean, how did you even start to pull those strings apart?
0: Well, I don't know. uh I mean, I can tell you that you know a good friend of mine, Nick as a matter of fact who who was in in the hospital and he was he was reading the book and he called me one day and he said, "You know, Paul, I'm reading it for the second time and he say he said, "I have to tell you, I am so impressed by how you've organized and structured this book, and I said that really means a great deal to me because that was the hardest thing I actually worked on because you know." it It's the kind of book you if you read it, you see I'm returning a lot of times to the same material, but you don't want to seem repetitious about it and so all I can say is it was very, very tricky to do, okay, when do I talk about how you know the editing of the scene where Garrett goes to his house? where do I place that in? In, in the thing, where do I talk about? You know, Peckin made, Peckinpah made a series of changes in the writing, and then he made changes even more when he was directing them. And you, 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 I, I, I just, you know, through very careful working it out in the process of writing. And I mean, I can't think that I ever wrote all of this down in terms of outlines because I don't tend to write that way. I just start in on writing and just see where it takes me, and then. You know, I I get it together in a a shape that I like. But that was really, conceptually speaking, that was the hardest part of the book to write or the hardest part of the nut of the book to crack. And and as I said, I mean, in the macro sense, it was easy. Part one is from the beginnings to the movie. Part two is the movie itself and all its trials and tribulations and the editing problems. And then part three is... What do you have to say about it now, Paul, since you talked about it earlier in, in, in the earlier book, because I wrote substantially on it twice before, and I didn't want to repeat any of that. That's why I said at the beginning of the book that, you know, I, I, I discussed it in terms of theme and all of that and technique to a substantial extent in the first and second editions of the Western Films book, and here... You know, in part because for the last 30 years, when I wrote that book, I was an academic. Here, I've been a practicing film editor for 30 years, 25 to 30 years, and so I was approaching the material differently in terms of his strategies of storytelling and, and you know, how you how you edit a film. Because you know, now I have that whole experience, which is which is behind me, which before it wasn't. It was in front of me, if you will the organization of it and how, how to how to present the stuff, that was the hardest thing I, I had to. I, I really had to be had to be working on. That took me some time. Do you think your
2: experience as an editor has helped your writing as far as that organizational skill
0: and being able to put those things together? I'm not sure that I, I could say that one way or another because I'm not sure I think I write all that differently from the way I, I wrote before. When you're doing this work, you're doing some of it from, as
2: you said, your experience. And then also, you've done the research on this before. But I imagine you're also playing a little bit of a sleuth trying to dig up some of these answers, especially during that, how the film came to be part of it. And I'm always fascinated by the career of Monty Hellman, and then especially his work with Rudy Wurlitzer, How did Hellman
0: come to and eventually leave the project? According to what Hellman told me, Hellman told me he did a lot of the research. And he showed me, he had the books still, and most of them were books I knew. I mean, I I already found, I found this kind of stuff before I met Monty, and I, I could see what he did. But Monty really felt that he supplied Rudy with a lot of his, a lot of the work. I mean what eventually happened I mean as I say in the book is that there wasn't there wasn't any kind of falling out or anything when they started shopping the when Gordon Carroll started shopping the film around the project around it was simply that no big studio would make it with Monty Hellman he was considered he was considered a small pictures director and uh you know he just he, he I mean th- th- there's the answer to it uh he, he was considered a small film pictures director and no they just no studio would make it with him you know there there I mean that that's the simple answer to that question um so uh uh and you know by then he and Rudy were not always in accord about how they wanted to How you wanted to develop the film and all that, the story and all that. So, so Gordon Carroll told me. But again, there was no falling out or anything like that. It's just that's, that's what it was. It was just the obvious thing that goes on with, uh, with studios and all that kind of stuff, who you're, who you're willing to hire. And I, I was actually really surprised that they went with, um, that somebody like aubrey went with peckenton given sam's given sam's reputation but there it is uh he he i mean they they did it so uh that that's how that that's how all of that that's how all of that happened how monty got not to be on it i think monty would be among the first to admit i mean he he certainly allowed as how it was with me, that he does think Peckinpah made it a better film than he would have. Even Rudy himself came to admit that's why I did that long email that he wrote me, which I thought was kind of nice, where he he just you know, he, he really did say that he was you know, that he kind of regrets some of the things he said about, you know, in interviews and so forth at the time. It it had a good outcome in that sense because you got a really extraordinary... I mean, you you, you really did get a, a great director. Not consistently working at the height of his powers, I don't personally think. I mean, I think a lot of things in this film. You know, I think had Sam not been drinking so much, had he had to contend with a interfering studio, I mean, a pretty unsympathetic studio and all, that, I, I think he would have done it. I think it could have been a better overall picture. And yet, as I say in the book, if that meant sacrificing the things that I love best about the film, I'm not sure I'd make the sacrifice. There's just extraordinary things in this, like like the very end of the, the film. I mean, that whole the whole long sequence in um, Fort Sumner, I think, that is extraordinary. I mean, I, I don't know that I would... There's a lot of that that I simply wouldn't wouldn't give up for that hypothetically better film. What was the reaction to the book when it came out? All the it, it was wonderful. I mean, it's gotten just fantastic reviews. I don't think it got a bad review. I mean, Variety excerpted it, the True West magazine excerpted it. You know, it was reviewing review the Times Literary Supplement, and in all the major, it got wonderful reviews. And if you look at it on Amazon. It's got tremendous, I mean, it's got full-length reviews on Amazon, so it's been, I mean, it's not the kind of book you're ever going to get any money from, because it's a, you know, it's a university press book, and it wasn't written for those reasons. I, I couldn't, you know, in most respects, be more pleased with, you know, the reception and everything else. Most people seem to understand afterward a lot of the issues that I tried to bring to But, you know, David Thompson was the reader for the manuscript. I didn't know this at the time, or one of the readers, and he he called it a stupendous achievement. And when you're not uh, going to Antarctica, what's keeping you busy these days? You know, I'm, I'm teaching again. My latest film that I did for Ron Shelton came out, and unfortunately, it did not get good reviews, to put it mildly, and it didn't last in theaters to... Uh, long, and I, I, I think Ron would be the first to admit that it's not the strongest work, but I certainly think it deserved better than what it got in in terms of reviews. So I'm hoping Ron, Ron will have a new film up soon, and and we'll be back in the saddle again. There's there's a screen of his that that's getting some attention now. So I'm a tenured faculty at. The Dodge College Film Conservatory at Chapman University, so I'll be starting teaching again. And and as I say, meanwhile we're still kind of basking in the memory of Antarctica and wondering, you know, just how we can get back there. I think we'd all everybody felt the same way, and it was really, really quite extraordinary how we all just, um, when we were leaving Antarctica, practically everybody on the boat just wanted to just start all over again. Michael, just start all over again.
2: back and we were talking about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. To the point of Paul Sater's uh, title, this was Peck and Paw's last Western, though I think that he worked with Western tropes throughout so much of his films. I mean, you could easily call Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia a Western and we see some of the same characters, we see some of the same actors in that that we see in these other films. I mean, you could go so far as to say that Convoy is pretty much a Western. It's almost like a wagon train. You don't have to set
8: something in the West to be a Western, I would think. I support the Convoy, though deeply flawed, as an iteration of the Western.
9: This was going to be like the ultimate Western. I know that the that was kind of the hype surrounding it, like Peckinpah doing another Western, After he basically had changed the landscape of westerns, the Wild Bunch, the essential like Western myth, the Billy the Kid. While it's my favorite western, it didn't quite turn out. (laughs) Didn't quite turn out that way.
2: Yeah, I wanted to compare this to some other westerns, and you know, I I brought up uh, the Unforgiven, which I think plays well with this. I was trying to make my way through the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And I can kind of see some similarities insofar as there's that kind of sprawling narrative. But God, did that not hold my attention? Well,
9: I'm, a, I'm a big fan of that one, too. But yeah, it, uh, it's a long one. Um, but uh, yeah, I know that the, the director of that, Andrew Dominik, uh, has cited Pat Billy really the kid, as an as an influence. And of course that has another singer-songwriter soundtrack, Nick Cave. But yeah, thematically it has a very similar, similar ideas. You know, the historical figures, the friend betraying uh, the other friend and all, and how it destroys them. So yeah, it's, uh, they're, they're very much interlinked. They're, they're sort of a, of a
2: piece. Nick cave definitely has a a real soft spot for westerns and those westerns that he has helped uh make like uh, the proposition god i hated that movie the first time i saw it but then i saw it again and i just absolutely loved it and that is i mean even though it's set in australia that is more of a western than i've seen a lot of westerns in america be you were talking about the decrepit nature of some of the sets in some of the world that Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is set in. As you were saying that, I was thinking the only thing that's missing is the flies, because those fucking flies from the proposition are everywhere, and I think that just would have added to just the shithole feeling of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which they capture so well.
9: I think there are some flies on... uh... Bob Ollinger's body after he gets shot with the with a shotgun. I think I think in a close up you can see some flies.
2: Almost as good as all those flies crawling all over our Frederick Garcia's head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. las <laughs> moscas.
9: That, that that scene where Ollinger gets killed. Uh, I went to a screening of The Wild Bunch like uh, I don't know, close to ten years, and the guy in front of me in in uh, in the line at the box office. He was uh, he did the squibs. He did the special effects for for peckinpah and he said that that shot where you see the dimes flying out of the shotgun uh it was basically like a trick shotgun and it was pieces of cardboard spray painted so when you see all those dimes, that's just cardboard that's spray painted cardboard when all the dimes come out and hit hit bob ollinger supposedly uh when peckinpah was filming in that in the prison in in um the getaway the one of the guys one of the inmates or something had to, Describe that to him. People putting dimes in shotguns.
2: I don't really think that works, but after he escapes, which is like the slowest escape I've seen on film in a long time. But after, after Billy, the kid escapes from that, that he gets on that horse and gets bucked off the horse. It's just like, it's such a perfect moment because you never see that. You never see a, a, a cowboy who can't handle a horse and that it gets bucked off and then has to go basically steal someone else's horse and be like, yeah, go ahead, you know, dig out. What was it? Like, I think there's a dollar fifty one 51 worth of change over on Bob if you want to dig it out.
9: <laughs> that is a true scene. That actually did happen. And the kid had said that you know once he gets another horse he'll he'll send the horse back and and a few days later the horse came back into town the kid had sent it back so uh the kid after he escaped he actually did stand around taking his time uh singing and stuff so that that is actually a piece of history but that kind of that kind of touches on Unforgiven too that's one of the things is you, you know how bad william money is
2: on his horse you know it's definitely a great moment it's funny that Billy the Kid was a singer, Chris Christopherson's a singer, but I don't think he breaks out into song at all during this one.
9: He he kind of does that sort of like, sort of singing spoken word uh, thing as he's as he's getting his stuff ready, and that's when Dylan you know Dylan comes out of the printer's office, and uh, you know kind of watching him.
8: It's, it's ironic that Dylan would be drawn out when uh, when hearing song break into the movie for the first time. <laughs> You almost wish that it was
2: like a scene from Rio Bravo where you've got Dean Martin and Ricky uh, Nelson singing at the same time. And even, um, why am I forgetting the, the old dude's name? You know, no, the, Walter the, Brennan. Walter Brennan. All three of those guys singing a song at one point. is just like, holy shit. I mean, can you imagine a Christopherson, um, Bob Dylan duo going on here? That would have been pretty awesome. Maybe R.G. Armstrong joins in as well. Archie Armstrong is just amazing with his whole holier-than-thou thing and the way that he plays against Christopherson and then Jekyll there just kind of like being the secret ally to Billy the Kid. Just like, don't be such a dick. Why do you have to be this way? (laughs) Just Oh, yeah. Matt Matt Clark. Oh, Matt Clark. I'm sorry. Jekyll and Clark sometimes look alike to me.
9: In the in Whirler script, Bob Ollinger is not like a like a religious nut. Peck and rewrote it because like R.G. Armstrong is always a religious nut in Peck and Paw movies. From Ride right the High Country, Major Dundee, this was like his ultimate re- crazy religious guy.
2: When you go back to watch Peck and Paw's films, David, which ones do you tend to go back to? It sounds like this one is always at the top of the list.
9: Yeah, for whatever reason, I find this one like really just watchable. Everything about it. Uh, Obviously, the Wild Bunch. That's a that's a big one. Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. uh, Straw Dogs. Uh, Yeah, I'm a big fan of Ride the High Country. The score is a little overbearing, and there's there's parts of it feel a little. uh, It's like it's it's definitely um, that link between like. Him as a television director, be, you know, you, you almost track it like the the beginning scenes of like Ride the High Country are sort of, you know, the fistfight in the Chinese place and stuff. It feels very like television quality. But by the time you get to the weird mining town, you're it's like, OK, yeah, Peck and Paws like developed yeah, as a real filmmaker. So, the, yeah, those are probably the big ones. Cross of Iron is very watchable. I don't really like the Osterman week. Again, I don't really like the Killer Elite too much. Not I don't really like Convoy.
2: The Deadly Companions is not very good. How about you, Mike? Is it fair to ask you that same question?
8: Yeah, it is fair. I think this is uh, there's some that I I want to revisit and actually watch, and there's some that I want to revisit and think about more conceptually, but not necessarily experience again. Uh, this one is Pat Garrett is and Billy the Kid is definitely it's definitely my favorite of them, and I think it's because uh, implicitly and explicitly the. The conflict is is so much between the two of them or within one, uh, which I'm really drawn to. I like the uh, I like the Steve McQueen movies a lot, and obviously the Wild Bunch, Convoy. You know, I think one person in every set of friends should see Convoy and tell the others, so no one else has to actually experience yeah. it firsthand. Uh, Alfredo Garcia is so it's so effective, and it's I think it sets out to do what it wants to do so well. I don't know that I need to see it again, but the ideas of it and like the prospect of, of talking to people about it is is very compelling. It also inspired uh, Iron Prostates. Bring me the head of Jerry Garcia, which was another inroad to Peck and Paw for me. Was uh, hearing that punk rock band do a Peck and Paw inspired song, and then to see the movie, like holy crap! I thought the music, the song was intense, and then to see that movie, which is I didn't think the title was literal because um, I had never. Uh, I didn't know anyone who had seen that before. I actually did. But looping back, I think um, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is uh, is, is the standout uh, for me.
2: You know, I really like The Battle of Cable Hogue quite a bit. I haven't really talked about that one too much on the show before, but I really enjoy that. Yeah. I think I'd go back to Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia if I had to pick one. But The Wild Bunch and Pat Garrett, they're both so. Interesting. And I think you just really start to see so much of the style come through in The Wild Bunch, stuff that would inform, you know, speaking of John Wu last week, stuff that would inform Wu and so many other filmmakers. But Pat Garrett, it seems like he is now firing on all cylinders and is able to explore more stuff. And I don't know. Yeah, it's it's uh it's a fascinating film. I don't know if it's entirely successful. Uh I don't know if I enjoy the rambling as much as like David and, and and you Mike, but I watch it and I enjoy it. I experience it and I think it's it's a better movie for it. I think it has to have that rambling nature to it and it has to be told the way that it is told and kind of more that rough cut, because I think it does, it's more effective that way, and it works better to have this almost like a, it's like a novel. You know, it feels like each one of these encounters is a different chapter, and we're kind of going chapter to chapter from Pat Garrett to Billy the Kid and seeing both of their growth or their descent uh, with each one of these. So I think it's a
8: very well-told story. I like the ramble a lot, and I like the, it seems very intentional and very loose at the same time. I, I come to all of this from uh, from punk rock, having been in bands and listening to that kind of music, and I think there's a I think there's a parallel there too, where it, what what may seem to be loose and unstructured is on the surface that way, but it's also that's part of the intention of it too, especially with those that. The, the settings that they move through and that a tighter script or a tighter structure would have caught out so many of those peripheral characters and those what might in, a, in another movie just be an aside or a side story. And this, in this case is so, uh, so much about the experience and, 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 um, you know, you'd like to think that everybody kind of gets their day, so to speak, like a slim Pickens scene or, uh, Ida Garrett's, uh, standoff and, um, but I, I think the ramble really draws out and maximizes to best effect all of those things.
9: I mean, outside of just the rambling nature of it, the biggest difference between this film and I think the wild bunch is, um, the wild bunch is a very visceral sort of adventure story. I mean, it's obviously more than that. Pat Garden Billy the kid is like, there's a heavy layer of irony to everything about it. I, I, and I think that's what separates it from the wild bunch. And there's a certain humor in pat garrett i mean uh, pat garrett the Kid is a weird movie because it's so sad and, uh, and fatalistic but it's also really humorous and almost every scene has uh, a, a certain amount of humor outside of maybe a, a couple here or there whereas like uh in the wild bunch it's sort of delineated you know this is a funny scene this is old man Sykes j- jumping up and down or whatever. Whereas I think in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, there's an underlying humor to the, uh, the duel between Alamosa Bill and Billy the Kid, you know, the way that they both cheat, but at the same time, it's a really sad scene too. So I do think that Peck and Peckinpah's skills had developed, uh, unfortunately, his alcoholism and, and all that had also developed too. He maybe became a little bit more unfocused in certain respects, but I uh, I also think that he was developing his ideas even more so.
8: With Wild Bunch, it's kind of like the weight of it is spread across the group, and it's like right there in the title. It's a it's a bunch, and with this, it's it's just those two characters. And as much as it's about the the other people that they encounter along the way, it's a, a very um very intense that way even though there's so few scenes with both of them in there every time you see one you sense the other or the the pursuit of the other or the awareness of the other
9: the heavy similarities between like the the friend two friends one's chasing the other I mean it's in pl- I mean it's obvious in, in, in uh, both films it's almost that similarity even it just shows how different Peck and Pa's approach is by that point. What I like, and I won't get I won't get too far into it, but what I do like is the way that uh, uh, Wurlitzer and Peck and Paul they they do use certain facts to bring out like you know a, a, a greater truth. Uh, there's a book that uh, I know that Wurlitzer definitely took a lot from. It's called Ma'am Jones of the Pecos, and anyone that's a fan of uh, of Peck and Billy the Kid should read it. It's basically you know that that Trading Post that where they have the duel, the Alamosa Bill duel, it's basically a a historical account of that family. And so that duel is actually something that happened, but it didn't happen with Billy the Kid, even down to the dialogue, even down to the guy using a door for a coffin. What I really one of the things that I like about Warlitzer's script is the quality of the dialogue. I think it has the best um approximation of like old west dialogue, you know. Just like, you know, I suspicioned on him and The way that he
8: has just sort of that that antiquated dialect. At one point, somebody says, uh, I didn't catch your name. I think Billy says to one of the – somebody, I didn't catch your name. He's like, I I didn't didn't put it out there, but I know in Yorn. Oh, yeah, (laughs) Yorn. Another one of my favorite lines is – it's a Dylan line where he's like, I can live anywhere. They're talking about moving to Mexico, and he's like, I can leave anywhere too. He's like, I don't know if they – is that really how they feel about things? Is that really what they aspire to? Um, and I, I think that's that kind of. Uh, uh, there's a level of ambiguity to to that that line and things like it that that make so many of these uh, so many of these characters in this movie as a whole really uh, something that's worth going back to.
9: Harry Dean Stanton's delivery. Or was it like, oh, in Mexico, you just be another gringo shitting out chili peppers and waiting for nothing like the way that he, he just kind of trails off. It's <laughs> yeah. one of my favorite parts.
8: That's kind of what he's doing right now. He's eating crummy food and waiting for nothing
9: <laughs> just in a different place. And that and that's one of the things I guess I guess I, one of the flaws of the movie for me is the um is the is the Paco subplot because it sort of it undermines sort of the fatalism of the way that the kid, you know, is leaving for Mexico and comes back. It becomes sort of a um Almost like he's, you know, he's going to go get Chisholm because his friend was killed. And it's, it just doesn't work as well uh, as uh, I think Wurlitzer's original script was just that the kid, he's going to go to Mexico and then he decides not to, which was the actual reality. I mean, the kid did escape and then just stayed in that area. And nobody really knows why <laughs> he kills two, two sheriff's deputies and then just stays in, in the same area waiting to get, to get caught, you know? So it's like the, it's, uh, it's already inherently, you know, fatalistic the, yeah, the way the kid lived his life. And so I think by having him like, Oh, that tears it. I'm going to go back and get Chisholm. That's one of the parts of the movie that I, I think undermine, um, the themes of it.
8: Yeah, that that's kind of the uh, the opposite of what you were saying before about the gun and the newspaper when he's going to the bathroom. Like, here's this thing that happens that's not explained, and the turnaround has a very uh, a very direct reason, almost like a, a a respectable reason. Like, oh, which is contrary to what you've seen in this this character for the you know previous hour and a half or so.
9: And it's just, and it's just a weird scene how it's cut because. Uh he just leaves the guy's daughter or or wife or whoever she's supposed to be, you know, with the dead bodies. And it's like, uh, I think in, in, in world literature script, he says to her, Oh, there's a town nearby or something. But for whatever reason, it's cut out out of the cut out of the film. So it's like, she's with her dead husband and he's just leaving her out on the prairie.
1: And an infant too. That's a little
9: bit of a black eye for the movie. But for people that like, know that, uh, the history of it uh the 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 film is obviously it takes the facts and kind of mixes them up and everything but uh it does have um you know the for example when they when his friend when they're chasing turkeys and his friend gets killed by Chisholm's cowboys That's sort of a reference to a real thing that happened with the kid that kind of started the kid off as as a criminal and started all the, you know, Lincoln County War is one of his he went out chasing turkeys and one of his friends was killed. So they there's all these sort of references to history throughout the movie, but they kind of, you know, mix and match. And it's it's fascinating if you if you do know the history, it's not just sort of like they weren't just like making it all
2: up. All right. We're going to take a break and play preview for next week's show. Marnie's been a bad girl.
5: And if she's allowed a second chance, she'll be even worse.
8: You don't love me. I'm just something you caught.
5: That's right, you are. I've caught something really wild this time, haven't I? Sean Connery and Tippi Hedren star
1: in a masterful tale of obsession.
8: I can, I
5: can. What sort of demon lives inside Marnie? That's
2: right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Alfred Hitchcock's Marnie. Until then, I want to thank my
8: co-hosts, Mike and David. Mike, how is the literary career going? It's very kind of you to uh, to call it a literary career as opposed to teaching with writing on the side. Uh, it's going well. It's going well. My. Uh, my next book's coming out in the spring, and it's a collection of music essays all around this um, this amazing uh, jazz scene that I discovered a couple towns over from me. It's going to be out on uh, uh, Razor Cake Press in the spring. And, um, yeah, I'm really excited. To, it's four years in the making, so I'm actually glad there's like a, a box of these things en route to my house. That's uh, pretty gratifying. And where's the best place for people
2: to buy your books and zines and all that good stuff?
8: Razorcake.org as the the zines that i do like this and submerging and uh they'll have copies of this uh this next book too
9: and david
2: how
8: is life in the art world
9: oh it's all right you can see my work at david lambert art on instagram or on facebook and uh sometimes i i, I do illustrations for roger Uh a book that i worked on a few years ago is out uh by matt zoller sites it's um the Oliver Stone experience. Oh, and the and the 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 western that I wrote the, back in 2012, the Scarlet Worm is uh, is still available from Unearthed Films, and I think it just got German distribution.
2: The Scarlet Worm with our good friend Mike Malloy in there.
9: Yeah, Mike Malloy, and I think uh, Eric
2: Zalivar, I think, was a,
9: has been a guest on this
2: on this podcast, right? Yeah. And then Matt Zoller seitz as well. Uh, we talked to him about that, uh, Oliver Stone book. And then if folks, uh, pay special attention, you can go back to our episode on the bad lieutenants. And we've got a illustration that David put together of, uh, Nick Cage out there, um, uh, doing, uh, I don't think there's any iguanas in that shot, but, uh, definitely, uh, some crazy eyes from Nick Cage. And then didn't you actually present that picture to him?
9: Yeah, I gave a and then I gave a drawing recently to uh, Jeff Goldblum in in in, in uh, Los Feliz, L.A. Uh, every Wednesday night, he uh, plays jazz. And then, uh, yeah, uh, I, I'd worked on the Oliver Stone experience, and I was basically in the Oliver Stone offices, um, going through all his archives, uh, all his visual archives, and it was just some of the stuff in there was was insane we we did a we had a screening of the hand that Oliver Stone went to at uh at uh, Cinefamily the now defunct Cinefamily and uh and uh, Oliver Stone was was there and uh and uh you know I'm not a I'm not a big pot smoker but I had to take the opportunity to smoke pot with Oliver Stone <laughs> <laughs> out of an apple and then uh we actually got we actually got uh rated by like I don't know if it's the LAPD or something, or some—it was some kind of thing. The place was like supposedly selling. Uh, booze without a liquor license or something. So, <laughs> so you know, it, it it makes sense that, like, you know, an Oliver Stone screening would get rated by the fuzz, you know. That's the best
2: kind of Oliver Stone screening. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-boot.com where you can find out more about today's episode. We'll also have links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show. We'll have links over to Razor Cake and over to David Lambert's art site. you also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
6: night's bed I don't know where I'm going Only I steal or have to win Well then tell me
10: If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support
5: ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special
10: thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.